WAPG Airline Pilot Guy. Airline Pilot Guy, episode 292. Hello, you're listening to the Airline Pilot Guy Show, the view from our side of the cockpit door. I'm Captain Jeff, your host, broadcasting live from Studio <laughs> 322 and the Hilton Recording Studios in Wilmington, North Carolina. <laughs> in this episode, Air France Flight 66's number four fan and engine inlet separated in flight, Elon Musk's city-to-city rocket transportation idea, more news, your feedback, and the latest Plain Tales installment, the Ian Black Interviews, Part 1. So get all settled in. Tray tables and seat backs in their upright and locked positions. Electronic devices powered on. Flight 292 is ready for pushback. Some little elves are playing with my script again, I see. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Airline Pilot Guy Show. And it's an aviation podcast where we talk a little bit about aviation, but most of the time we just fool around and have fun. (laughs) And uh, joining me today from the Carolinas. Doctor? Doctor? A doctor, Doctor. a physiatrist. Doctor? Doctor. Doctor. And marathon runner. Doctor. Doctor. Strength training junkie and commercial multi-engine instrument rated pilot. The most important part of her description. Dr. Steph. Hello, hello. Good to be back. Sorry I missed the last show. I think we're going to get into all of the reasons why I was not here last week in just a little bit. No, we're not. We're just going to move on. Fine. That's good. Yeah. All right. (laughs) We're over that. Great. Moving on then. (laughs) Good to be back. Looking forward to a great show this evening. I I didn't even know you were gone. And also joining us from across the pond in the southwest of London area. We have former RAF and R2AF fighter pilot, professional photographer, and currently wide body captain, Captain Nick Anderson. Well, hello again, Jeff. Great to be back on the show. You know, I don't know, time seems to be going faster it must be perhaps my age but it seems we only did a show like two days ago three days ago uh is that right it does seem it's really weird yeah it's weird i think it must be be. anyway lovely to see you again (laughs) well it could be that maybe it was only about three days ago (laughs) that we did the show and (laughs) also joining us from the beaches of the florida gulf coast panhandle we have former Regional jet pilot, now captain on Acme Airlines, Captain Dana Colton. Well, good afternoon and good evening and good morning to wherever you guys are listening. Uh, great to be back. And uh, yes, I did enjoy a very nice stay on the uh, the beaches of uh, Fort Walton Beach and looking forward to an o- another fantastic show this evening. I heard you uh, got a chance to see some uh, sea mammals out there uh near the beach yeah uh, captain nick was very uh, very generous in sharing a very nice photo of a mermaid and uh, then i saw some oh i thought you said something about well and i was just gonna say you know there were it must be a walrus convention here because i can, I can tell you 
there wasn't. Uh, well, I just want to come back to my room and wash my eyes out with acid because it wasn't very much <laughs> to look at. That's not no, good. It was terrible. That's not good at all. I was looking forward to this overnight so much, but then you know, <laughs> wow. Hopefully, for hopefully, yeah, uh, Panama got- City Beach next week will be nicer. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you're terrible. So, where are you, Fort Walton? Uh, yes, Fort Walton. Okay. Yes. Great overnight. All right. Um, so what have you been up to in the last few days, Dana, other than uh, enjoying the weekend and then starting your trip? I guess, uh, how was Well, your weekend? the weekend was fantastic. Uh, got another uh, great day of riding on Saturday and Sunday. Uh, got to watch my beloved Patriots lose to Cam Newton. That Woo-hoo! was very painful. <laughs> that was very painful, but you know, I know what, Hey, listen, I get, I, I get to tell you, we, we are not looking good this year at all. So, uh, it was, uh, it was not fun, but it was, a, it was a very, very busy week in my head. Uh, I was spinning. Um, my wife had some fantastic news, uh, over the week, uh, this past week. And, uh, she is no, she's, she is divorcing me. <laughs> and yes. And she found a man with a lot of money. So, <laughs> oh, yay! Congratulations! <laughs> yes, unbelievable. Yeah, no, she's uh, starting a new job in a couple of weeks. So, very happy. For yeah, oh, really. Congratulations! Yeah, she's excited. She about is very success. excited. She went from two two weeks. Excellent. I mean, uh, uh, I can't say this, uh, but anyways, I won't say it on air. But she's she's going for getting some additional benefits, and she's only going to be. Uh, six miles maybe five miles from the house now versus uh, about 30 so oh. it, it worked out great so it's been it was a, a weekend of celebration a happy weekend and we uh we got to enjoy some uh, uh good friends i uh, you know it, 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 well maybe not so yeah well no <laughs> i'm i'm dealing with a very sad situation and uh those who know about acme jr in atlanta they got fired and he is one of the casualties. And after 19 years, he's uh, going to be pretty much without a job. So um, it's, yeah, what? yeah. Um, what do you mean they got fired? They got fired. They'll no longer be flying for Acme Senior. And uh, Acme Junior is going to be gone in Atlanta. And they have offered them positions uh, in Houston, Chicago, and New York, I believe, are the positions. But even a 19-year 19 19 year captain uh, is being offered a position as a first officer with an 18-month lock at the bottom of the list. Yeah, yeah, it's it's, it's a really bad situation. Well, why can't he – so are those like two separate entities and not all under the same company? Well, it's, it's uh, Acme Express something. I'm not going to go with the rest of it, but, huh. uh, yeah, they, they're all under one umbrella now. I mean, they're all – um, they're all under the same company when they were purchased, I don't know, five, six years. But they have like separate seniority they lists? Do. Mm. They do. Oh. They never. They were never able to work yeah. that out. So when uh, Sky Something Out West uh, purchased uh, Acme Junior in Atlanta and then ultimately sold it to Express Something Jet, um, they uh, they never merged the list. So he is uh, he's among many that are in a a very bad predicament and, and I spent the weekend uh, with him because he hasn't been able to move on. He's one of the guys that's stuck. Doesn't have yeah. a college degree. Um, so, you know, he's stuck. So, well, at least he's not 
I mean, he doesn't have to completely lose his job. Uh, I mean, it would be a demotion, of course, but uh, I, I, we have some news that we're going to talk about today, which is also sad news for somebody, especially that we know in our community. So, uh, yeah. yeah, it's uh, that's one of the things about this industry. You know, it has its ups and downs, and I'm not making a pun, no. um, you know, although it would have been a good one. But Yeah, so that's anyway. – you asked me what I dealt with this weekend. Had a really nice bike ride. Yeah. Oh, that's what I meant. To, and, and it was – Yes, I do have one other thing. I went to this thing called Georgia Jets. Now, I didn't put out a meetup on it because I had never been there. But Georgia Jets is a remote control Jets. So it was an unbelievable day of watching all these military Jets. And uh, they even had a UPS DC-10. All these, uh, you know, probably about six to eight foot Model aircraft did a remote control. Oh, radio, radio control. control. Unbelievable day. So I think next year when, when it happens in September, I'll go ahead and put up meet up on it. Meet out. Meet up on it. Um, and it was it was really a great. Oh, day. I think I'm gonna be busy mm-hmm. that weekend. Yeah. Okay, good. Good for Got you. Me. So <laughs> that's the other thing we went to this weekend. It was unbelievable. Wow. That sounds interesting. Yeah, it was, it was, it was awesome. Cool. Did you take some pictures? I do have some pictures. I was gonna share. Of course, you recorded some audio describing your um, your time there, and uh, well, <laughs> no, I guess you didn't. Okay, well, moving on. Um, let's see, Captain Nick, <laughs> how have you been doing? Well, in the three days before we last chatted, um, let me think. I have not been feeling particularly well, so I have coughed. You look like, by the way, I just want to let you know. I coughed and spluttered my way uh, through a few days. Uh, And that's about it. Of course, um, uh, we're going to talk about it, but uh, uh, I was uh, doing my best to try and uh, help out Captain Al because he's in a bit of a predicament at the moment. Um, uh, Apart from that, um, nothing much has been going on. I uh, did an interview today, which is in the plain tale. So that has been a very fast turnaround of that. My thanks to uh, Ian Black for accommodating me. Um, No, I've just been looking forward to this show. I'm going to tell him I'm fit uh, in a couple of hours, and then tomorrow morning I'm back on standby. Excellent. Maybe they'll get some work out of you nah, for a change. Nah. It'll never happen. Okay. Looking forward to the interview later in the show. And now I guess we need to talk to Steph and what she's I haven't done anything, doing. so don't worry. Wait. Okay. Well, <laughs> no, wait a minute. Um, apparently, uh, you recorded something for – oh, never mind. You didn't record anything at the uh, meetup for us. So what have, what have you been doing? You mean so- we're, we're going to talk to Sushi sh- – sh- I can't say it. Sushi sh- – Sushi Steph – or is it sashimi stuff? <laughs> sashimi. What, what we need to do is we need to start with uh, yes. Berlin. Because, we'll start. We'll start at uh, the beginning. It's been, um, been, yeah. So last time I actually talked to you guys on the show was oh two week two weeks ago exactly right the nineteenth was when we did whatever episode that was two ninety maybe and I left early because I oh, no 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 wait wait you uh, you got you came to us live from uh, Tillman's place in Berlin. Oh, no, never mind. That, that wasn't was us. Show. That was another show, Jeff. I'm going to explain. Okay, go ahead. I'm sorry. How everything worked <laughs> out. So. Hold on for a second. Good grief. <laughs> like if she'd been only like two hours <laughs> earlier, she could have come live to our show. <laughs> we, well, the timing just. We're very out, hurt. So. Two very hurt. I'm sorry. <laughs> I did talk to you guys on the 19th. I was here. I 
squeezed in a little bit of time before I had to go to the airport. So that was, that was very yeah. good. And um, mm -hmm. I took a very roundabout way of getting to Germany, which was my first stop, um, mostly because of time constraints. And I didn't want to spend a lot of money to fly to Europe because apparently that's can be very expensive out of Charlotte. So I flew with Turkish. But you, it looks like you flew uh, some some nice. Oh uh, yes, nice business class. And that travel. actually would okay, have, tell us, that, those sorry, flights actually you. cost me less than it cost me would would have cost me to fly with only one stop between Charlotte and Berlin. So instead, I picked a flight that had two stops, and it left later in the day because I thought maybe I would work in the morning, but I didn't end up doing that. So it doesn't matter. But flew with, flew with Turkish Airlines, flew business class with them, but stopped in Toronto and Istanbul. Um, so it's kind of a long day of flying, um, but really very, very nice flights um, with them. I was really pretty impressed. Um, got into Berlin and um, Fabian was already in Berlin and he was at the airport doing some plane spotting, which actually worked out great. So I met up with him as soon as I got off the plane. And uh, I said that was great because uh, he knew kind of the, the bus system, at least a little better than I did. He's not from Berlin, but at least he speaks German. Um, so that was helpful. So we actually just took a bus down to where my hotel was. And then we went out and had a drink and called it an early evening. And on actually the next day, um, uh, private pilot Tillman, who's one of our APG community members um, was very, very generous. And he took us out flying in his um, uh, Piper Archer that he has access to out of this really, really cool um, old uh, East German Soviet era uh, airport airfield with these hangars that look like bunkers, basically. Um, they're kind of covered in grass, so you can't see them from the sky. Uh, they have these really, originally they had these really, really thick hangar doors that I think were two feet or two meters or something ridiculous um, thick and we're on railroad tracks to open. Um, so just a really, really neat place to see. And we actually got to plan out and take a VFR flight all over Berlin. So basically we overflew the two major airports there and then kind of circumnavigated the city and, and back to the airport where we started. So that was a really, really awesome day. And I can't thank Tillman enough for taking us out. So um and then Tillman comes back into the equation because the next evening he hosted a meetup for us at his uh, brewery, which is part of the hostel, which he's a uh, owner of, part owner of. And <laughs> I am sorry, I didn't take any recording equipment with me, nothing. So I wasn't really planning on doing a whole lot of anything. Um, but there were... Well, you told us I you were going to do I, a No, bunch. I said I was going to do a bunch of... Yeah. Um, you built I it up. I said I was going to do a bunch of uh, crew logs, <laughs> oh, which I started right. some mind. of them. I got okay. I got <laughs> Misinterpreted. <laughs> so, you know, the thought that's is right. all that matters. That's right. It was. I had good intentions. Um, <laughs> Isn't there a road to somewhere? Yes. Yes, it's paved with good intentions. I'm, I'm well aware. But <laughs> <laughs> so at the at the meetup, I'm going to run through the, the list of names because it was actually quite a big turnout. So we had um, Andreas. I don't want to forget him because I forgot him when I did my crew log recording about this. I thought I'd gotten everyone, but there's always someone that escapes me. So I apologize, Andreas, you were there. Um, Brian, who is from the US. Will, who is from the US. Um, Henry, who is from Berlin. Steve from Ireland. Uh, Masha from the Netherlands. Fabian, who I've already mentioned. David from New Zealand. Um, at the moment, I can't remember why he was in Berlin. And then, um, of course, Tillman and his uh, Sister-in-law and brother-in-law, his sister-in-law was also there to run the marathon in Berlin. 
and then my friend Jessica, who was there to run the marathon, and my and my dad. So we had quite a turnout. And they actually brewed a special beer for the occasion, which was fantastic. He named it the uh, Dr. Steph's uh, Conversion Training Special or something along those lines. <laughs> it was really good. It was Very a catchy name. Yeah. What's that? Very Did you save name. us some? Um, I think there is still some left. You have to go to Berlin to to try it. Unfortunately, yeah, ah, just well a quick done. quick stop over. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, we're airline pilots. It shouldn't actually be a problem, right? <laughs> no, it was it was really well, a fantastic beer. Uh, we consumed a lot of it. Um, <laughs> I, thought you, I thought you were going to say. I thought you said you're going to be in, do it in moderation because you had to race within 48 hours. Yeah, yeah. We'll we'll not go there. But oh, and then I should I should also mention. Um, I'm forgetting one very important person who was at the meetup. Um, Owen uh, from uh, Harpjet Lines. Oh wow! And so he was there, and he was in. Oh, Ian. Yeah, Ian. Yeah. <laughs> Owen. Sorry. I'm just... So he was in touch with the Plane Talking UK guys, and he said, "Hey, they're going to be starting their show right about the time we start the meetup. Would you mind if they called in and we could just, you know, say hi with everyone?" So that's how that happened. So it was very, very nice. Of I, I really am not hurt. I, I think that was very cool that you were so able there, to do there that. There is video out there. You just have to I'm just go to the wonderful Plane Talking UK podcast. I think it was exactly like that's what we said last time. Uh, if you want to hear, want to hear uh, Stephanie uh, in the meetup in Berlin, then you need to go over to PT. Exactly. <laughs> so that was great. Um, the next morning, I ran a breakfast run, which was like six k. Um, I made it. <laughs> You weren't expecting to do that, though, right? Um, My friend Karen that I was there with was like, we're running this breakfast run in the morning. I was like, oh. Say what? Good. You'll notice Karen did not make it to the meetup. She uh, slept. So (laughs) Ah. she felt great in the morning. I felt good enough to run 6K. And (laughs) really cool run, though, because it ended at the old Olympic Stadium, um, the one that was used for the 1936 Olympics. Um, That was really neat to see. It's, It's an amazing stadium. It's in really good shape considering the the age of it in the year it was used and i think they use it for um world cup uh football soccer stuff now too as well if i am thinking correctly um but then the main event in berlin was the uh, marathon on sunday um so got up ran the marathon really nice conditions other than it was so it was overcast it was kind of muggy it'd been kind of drizzling on and off in the morning but the temperature was cool uh so it was actually perfect for me i don't mind a little bit of rain or drizzle well while running that kind of distance, um, had a goal time of four hours and 30 minutes, which is not my, my personal best time, but considering I'm going to be running another marathon this coming Sunday, I didn't want to, I just, I'm looking for consistency at this point, making it through it. So came in right at four twenty-seven, four hours, 27 minutes, right oh, on target. Good. So I was, I was pretty happy with that. I felt good at the end of it. Um, Yay. yeah, I was, I was pretty excited. That's awesome. Thank you. Yeah, it is awesome. Really, I'd still be running. And <laughs> still be running. No, no. I you guys could all make it through a marathon, I, I guarantee. They would have they would no, they would have been there with the the heart, uh, you know, what's that thing that's the, the your heart over Yeah. Yeah. For me especially. Are you eating something? Yes. <laughs> Are you gonna share it with all all of us? God. It was a piece he of is. ice. He's sharing it with us right I, now. Yeah. No, I'm sorry. It was a piece of ice. <laughs> all right. So, okay, so I've got, I've still got half the trip to tell you about. Let me keep going. going. Um, So getting back to some aviation related stuff, I uh, finished the marathon, got on, I went back to the hotel, packed up my stuff immediately and went to the airport um, because I had a flight to catch to London for the evening. 
where I was met at the airport by Sir Neville Bounds. Um, and he picked me up and we went out to dinner with, it was Nev, Pilot Pip, and Adam Spink. And we had a very nice curry dinner, um, not too far from from the airport. And nice to see those guys and I appreciate them coming out because it was kind of late by the time I got in. I don't think we started eating dinner until about nine o'clock. Um, went back to the hotel, slept for about six or seven hours, I think. And then I had a flight in the morning um, to Tokyo, which with a stop in Abu Dhabi on Etihad. And that was an amazing experience because I'd already booked a business class flight, which wasn't terribly expensive given the distance that I was going. And there was a, a bid offer to um, upgrade to a first class seat. So I put in the minimum bid because I was like, Meh, why not? Uh, spoiling myself a little bit this entire trip. Plus, I just ran a marathon, and the more space I can have to get up and move around, the better. You deserve it. <laughs> so anyway, I, I, my minimum bid was accepted for a first-class flight for, for the first segment. Uh, there wasn't, there weren't any upgrades available for the second segment, but you know, a seven-hour flight, I'll take a first-class upgrade. Not a bad deal. And if you guys have, if, if those of you listening out there have not seen or heard of um, these first-class quote-unquote apartments that they have on the A380 with some of these Middle Eastern carriers. Oh my goodness, it was the most lavish, crazy thing I've ever seen. <laughs> I mean, you could fit like three people in this space if you wanted to. Um, oh, one of me. It had, could uh, you fit three people in the shower? Maybe two. <laughs> it'd, be, it'd be really cozy though you'd have to yes i did say shower folks yes so i saw the pictures <laughs> so of the shower get on the plane you know ogle over just the entire setup because it's one big seat um which is like your main seat that you have to be in for takeoff landing all that stuff seatbelt and then there's a couch and the couch actually opens up into a bed which is much larger than any bed i've ever seen on you know but bigger than the usual just lay flat uh business class seats or anything like that. Um, you know, you have your own little mini fridge that's stocked. And the when you get on the plane, the chef comes up and says, what time would you like lunch? Or what do you want from the menu? We'll bring it whenever, whatever time you tell us to. So that was pretty nice. I was like, well, I'm going to sleep for like two hours and then I'd like lunch. And then they said, would you like to book the shower? I said, yes, <laughs> of course I would like to book the shower. Um, so yeah, on the plane, there's actually a shower for the first class cabin. and they book it in half hour segments. And I, so I got my time set up for about an hour and a half before we landed. And uh, I figured that give me enough time to shower, get, you know, myself back together and be back in my seat before we we're making our descent and landing and all of that. Um, they give you about five minutes worth of water time. <laughs> so there's a little push button start and stop. So that was nice. So you don't have to um, get in and just take a quick five minute shower. You can actually, uh, you know, shampoo, condition your hair, all that good stuff. Um, what do you do for the other 25 minutes then? Well, you, so maneuvering, you it's, still, it's still a, uh, it's still an aircraft lavatory. It's really not that large. So a lot of it for me, at least was trying to like, okay, I'm going to turn around here. I'm going to hang my clothes up over here and the towel over here. And then I have to turn around again and, you know, like get my sock off and I'm trying to not fall over um, <laughs> in the lab. So Wasn't it weird to be naked on an airplane? Nah, I don't know. No, not really. I'm just taking a shower. I do it all the time. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> wow. 
So I will it's say a little embarrassing for the first officers, of course. <laughs> yeah. They didn't want to say anything, but you know. So those mad uh, dogs get pretty hot, Jeff. They do. <laughs> so anyway, uh, yeah, I mean, oh, that was the fastest seven-hour flight I've ever been on. It was like, oh, we're here already. I was just, you know, starting to enjoy everything I have to to take in here. So, um, if you get the chance, it's. I mean, it's it's not cheap, but. I did it much cheaper than the actual listed fare with the upgrade. So if it's ever offered and you want to spoil yourself a little bit, give it a try and see. Um, and then, oh, the, the other perk that came with that was the access to the first class lounge uh, in Abu Dhabi. So I had a chance to run in there and grab a 15-minute back massage and then catch my next flight to Tokyo. Uh, which was a nine-hour flight on a Dreamliner in business class. And I slept the entire way. Like, I was so relaxed at that point. <laughs> I just passed out. Right. Next thing I knew, we were in Tokyo. And I was, like, good to go for the day. So, Excellent. Yeah. It was, that was a lot. Jealous. <laughs> um, gosh, what do I even say about Tokyo? I can keep going forever. You can cut me off, and I can do, like, a part two next week if you want. <laughs> No, no, no. Okay. It's, All right. Uh, I'll, I'll continue we, then. We have plenty of time. Sure. Yeah. We've got another, another uh, two hours. So um, yeah. So Tokyo, I had just about five days total in Tokyo. Um, I was there to meet up with friends and a friend who lives there, a mutual friend of ours. Um, so I actually, I flew into Narita and my other friends were flying into Haneda and we were only getting in about two hours apart. So my friend that lives there, her her name is also Steph. So just to make things confusing, Steph went to go pick up the other friends at Haneda. And she gave me very detailed instructions on what bus to take and what train to take to get to um, the train station by her house. And she would pick me up there, assuming that we could kind of just coordinate the times. Um, so I was like, our, our flight was early. I was like the first one off the plane. I was through Immigration and Custom, got on, found the bus, got on the bus, took the bus across Tokyo, which was like a almost hour and a half long ride, two hour ride, um, got to the train station. And she she had told me which platform I could, could use. And any of those trains would go to the station that she lived nearby. So I got on the train and then I realized that I wasn't recognizing any of the next stops that I was supposed to be seeing. So I sent her a quick text and she goes, oh, shoot, I forgot. There's one train that does not go the right direction. So I managed the one train. Uh, so I was like, okay, no, no big deal. It wouldn't be, you know, a, an international travel adventure if I didn't take a, an incorrect train at some point. So got off, went back to the other station, got back on the correct train. So just a um, minor hiccup. Minor hiccup. Um, got to the train station, and I didn't realize this, but in especially in Tokyo, I guess, like most of the main train stations are also just like these big commercial shopping centers and malls. Um, so got off the train, walked into the mall area, found a Starbucks, sat down. Tried to record a crew log. It didn't turn out very well because the audio quality was not very good. Um, then I couldn't get it uploaded anyway, so it didn't really matter. But uh, sat there for about an hour. Still no no word from anyone else. And finally ended up taking a taxi cab over to Steph's house because apparently my friends, when they got off the plane, they, they made a tactical error, which they readily admitted to. They got off near the front of a full 777. Um, and then they went to the bathroom. Uh-oh. Oh, no, <laughs> so hold it in. Hold it in. Oh, no. Oh, wow. <laughs> went ahead of them to Immigration and Customs, and they went to the back of the 
the line of however many people got off the plane, pretty much. So rookie mistake. Uh, rookie mistake. They they readily admitted it. So it, it took them a very long time to get <laughs> back to Steph's house, but that was all good. We we spent a very nice night catching up, having a little bit of wine. Um, I think all of us woke up at two uh, thirty in the morning for no good reason other than jet lag, and uh, but that was really the only night I had trouble with jet lag. Um, every other night I, I did okay. Um, and then we, we spent a couple nights out in Tokyo together, um, just doing all the crazy things you can imagine doing in Tokyo. Um, not necessarily anything aviation related, but lots of good food, good, uh, these tiny little bars that we would go into, um, massage the happy endings. We did not partake. Um, (laughs) and then uh, your mind, right, right. Um, massages. Okay, we know where your mind is. And then I had about a day and a half on my own in Tokyo, um, or in the Tokyo area. So I actually took a day trip by myself down to Kamakura, and oh, I forget the other. Kama, 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 Kama. That's Culture Club, I think. Oh. Boy George, yeah, similar. Yeah, sounds similar. But anyway, really, I really enjoyed that trip. It was a cool little town with a big um, temple and a giant Buddha that you could go see, and then another little side trip to an island called Inoshima um, and just lots of interesting things to hike around and see all kinds of interesting foods to try the best sushi I've ever had in my life. Um, then it was time to go home and that was Sunday. Um, flew home with American Airlines because it was the most direct route I could get <laughs> at that point. Triple uh, seven and then an A321. So yeah. And here I am. Wow. I'm back. So did you go completely around the world then? Yes. I went wow. All the way around. That's cool. Wow. Yeah. That's amazing. It was, it was a great what trip. What does the backside of the world look like, Steph? It's dark. No, just okay. <laughs> There's less less light. No, no. It looks it looks the same. So much better than your backside. Uh, that's for sure. <laughs> <laughs> I'm that wow. <laughs> All right. Oh boy. But no, it was fantastic. Wow. And um, thanks again to everyone who came out in Berlin because that was really something special. And um, yeah. Yeah, I kind of lived vicariously through uh, your social media tweets and stuff and uh, yeah. looked like a lot of fun. Yeah, it was, it was great. Thanks for sharing all that. Uh, and I sat in vain waiting for a crew log, but there you go. Uh, <laughs> I have excuses for that too. There's a few more up now, yep. but yeah, I still have more. To all work. right. Excellent. Yeah. Excellent. Well, thank you. I'm glad that you're back. Now the show's over. Sound. Have a good night. Now, I guess uh, <laughs> that means that uh, like for the next probably several weeks to months, uh, you're not doing a thing, right? Uh, yeah. So on Friday uh, this week, I'm leaving to go to Chicago. <laughs> what? Because <laughs> I have what to are you run gonna another... do there, Steph. Going to run a run marathon. A marathon? <laughs> really? Why, actually? Yeah. Yes. Yes, I am. <laughs> The 40th anniversary is, or the 40th uh, Chicago Marathon is this Sunday, the 8th of October. And I will be there for that. So looking forward to it. Excellent. How are your toes doing? Toes are great. Um, yeah. My legs feel like I, I went out for a run when I was in Tokyo. I did about five miles. That felt good. Um, I've done so much walking over the past week. Uh, there was one day in Tokyo I walked like 14 miles when I was by myself. Going good yeah. So, but I feel feel pretty good. So uh, before we started recording today, we were talking about my quote unquote new diet. Um, I'm trying the uh, the low carb thing, trying to lose some of my gut. And uh, that means uh, I can't drink beer. Sorry, uh, Dr. John Brown, who brought all those 
IPAs from Toronto. I guess I'm going to have to give all of them to uh, Steph. Excellent. She's going to hate that. That's terrible news. Um, Tragic. And she goes, well, I eat all this stuff and uh, I don't gain any weight. I said, yeah, you were like walk and run 300 miles a day or something like that. So uh, I can't do that. I'm old. And so anyway, so we'll see how long this lasts. You know, me, I start things and then I kind of quit them pretty quickly. (laughs) But uh, anyway, what else was I going to say? I'm on a five day, a five day trip. I'm normally, I normally don't do these, but uh, this one's kind of really more like a four day with a little bit of something on the first part. So uh, last night flew here to Wilmington, North Carolina, which is a beautiful city in North Carolina on the uh, East coast and got in at a decent hour. Uh, it was just barely dark when we landed. It was a little after eight and I've been here all day. And then I start flying again tomorrow. Uh, end up in, where do I end up in Wichita and uh, pretty early in the day before noon. And then Thursday I'll be in the Canton Akron area. So if you're listening to my voice right now, uh, we are planning to get together with a couple of uh, other APG community members uh, sometime, I think in the afternoon, um, James uh, Balch and uh, Captain Rick Bell, at, at least two. And uh, I'm going to have to contact Paul to see if he's going to be available as well. And we'll, uh, if you're in that area and you're listening to us right now, uh, by the time I publish this uh, podcast, though, it'll probably be history. But uh, if you're watching this live or watching the video, uh, check us out. Uh, Slack is probably the best way to do it. And follow me on Twitter, APG Crew and Airline Pilot Guy. So looking forward to that. I told everybody I wasn't sure I was going to be able to do a meetup because we weren't sure exactly when we were going to be recording today's show. But we're doing it today, Tuesday, the 3rd of October. Uh, let's see. What else? Anything else? Uh, it was a quick weekend. Watch the uh, you all have turned me into a Formula One race. Uh, well, you um, enjoyed the Grand Prix. I do. You know, in fact, now I try to watch NASCAR and uh, I can't watch it anymore. You guys have ruined <laughs> me for NASCAR. I, now I watch Formula One. Left turns so are just thank so you a lot for that. Passe. Welcome. I know. At least, they, at least they turn left occasionally. Yeah, they turn left and right. Um, anyway, so, uh, enjoyed that race, the Malaysia race and what else? I was only home for a couple of days before I'm back out on the trip. So uh, here I am and, uh, looking forward to talking about some news and your feedback. Anything else we want to talk about before we move to the coffee fund? Got everybody, right? I didn't forget anybody. No, nope. All good. Okay. All good. Very good. good. Let's go to the coffee fund then. Johnny, how much more coffee? No thanks. I love coffee. I love tea. I love the KPG community. Coffee and tea and the Java and me. A cup, a cup, a cup, a cup, a cup. Okay. Why? Why in the world am I playing the Java Jive? That is a good question. It's because this is where we talk about the coffee fund. And the Java Jive is a perfect song to uh, serenade us while I tell you about the way that you can support us. And that is uh, by being a Coffee Fund cadre member, a contributor via the uh, Coffee Fund. And information about it is found at the AirlinePilotGuy.com website, AirlinePilotGuy.com slash coffee. And... uh, 
the preferable method now is to become a patron via patreon.com. All the information is available on the website. Uh, since the last episode, we have one person who uh, used the classic method via PayPal, Richard Adams. Thank you, sir, for your generous contribution to the fund. And uh, let's see, we have a new producer at uh, Patreon, and his name, David Swartout. I probably mispronounced that, so sorry, David. But uh, thank you very much for uh, becoming a member of Patreon and the Coffee Fund Cadre. Why would you want to do this? Well, if you have the financial resources to do so, uh, you can be part of uh, the production of this program because you're supporting us directly with financial uh, means. And uh, the other thing is a little perk that we put out, these crew logs that we talk about occasionally. And uh, we hope to be doing more of these in the future. And uh, as I mentioned on the last program, uh, to get the uh, crew logs now, from this point going forward, uh, you need to be a um, member of Patreon. So for everyone who has uh, contributed via either the Classic Method or Patreon, thank you, thank you, thank you so much. It would be very difficult to do the show without your support. Coffee and tea and the Java and me. A cup, a cup, a cup, a cup. Boy. Stand by for news. Air France flight over the Atlantic has been forced to make an emergency landing in Canada after a technical issue with one of the plane's engines. Photos posted online show part of a turbine peeled back, but it's not clear how bad the damage actually is. The flight left Paris headed for Los Angeles this morning. Air France said flight AF-66 made a safe landing in Goose Bay in Labrador, where technical checks are going to be carried out Alternative arrangements for passengers are being made, although getting people on the plane was reportedly a problem as the airport didn't have stairs big enough for a plane of that size. All right. One of the passengers on board that plane, Sarah Amy, joins us now to talk about what happened. Sarah, thanks for joining us. Uh, What time was this and what did you see and hear? Um, It was probably about four hours ago that actually occurred. Um, And basically what had happened is that uh, we heard a loud pop and um, we had a quick descent along with some vibration. Um, It definitely was not turbulent, so we knew something was wrong. Um, And from there, uh, we were able to recover. The captain was able to recover the plane quite fast. However, we were definitely nervous because the vibrating was probably occurring a good five to eight minutes Um, And then the captain basically 10 minutes, 15 minutes after um, provided an announcement stating that we had a small um, engine explosion. An engine explosion. That would make me a little bit nervous. How are you (laughs) feeling? 
very nervous. I travel a lot and I knew it was something different than just normal turbulence. So it was uh, definitely scary. Someone had a little loud yelp, um, but we were basically all white knuckling it, um, praying for the best. So. Let, let me ask you, we're looking at uh, the photo uh, of someone is obviously sort of on board and, and looking outside and clicked a photo of the plane and the damage that was done. Uh, it's hard to tell. Was there a fire? Did you sp smell any smoke or, or was it an explosion? And then and then that was it. Um, it was a, an explosion in the vibration. Um, we actually I, I'm on the left side of the plane and the right side. There were definitely people that were looking at it. No smoke smell, per se. Um, the exit sign was flashing, which was definitely a little scary. And then you see the crew going back and forth. Um, probably taking pictures, of course, for tra traffic control or something to that nature. All right. Um, You're on the ground now. What's next for you? We're waiting. We're waiting for an update. We've been on the ground now for about two hours. So it's a very small airport, and we're <laughs> hoping we get home at some point. Are you from Los Angeles? I am. Okay, so you were, to get home. you're on your way home. Have they given Correct. you an update as to when they're going to be able to get you guys uh, off and, lo and loaded not. back headed towards L.A.? Unfortunately not. We have not received any update probably in the last hour or more. Wow. So we are trying to just basically wait in the airplane and see where we're going to go from here. But there's no other aircraft that we see anywhere near this airport. So that's not sure what's, on the uh, timeline. Pretty much. All right. Sarah Amy uh, is joining us. She's a passenger who was on board that Air France flight uh, that went that came down and landed suddenly made an emergency landing uh, in Labrador. Amy, uh, Sarah, Amy, thank you for joining us. Good luck to you. I hope you thank get you. out sooner than later. Thank you so much. That was from the uh, CTV. I guess that's Canadian television. I think that's what that stands for. And uh, I love the way she pronounced turban. So it's like a combination of turban and turbine. Turbine. Um, Except it was anyway. a compressor, but don't worry about that. Yeah, well, whatever. No, they're all sort of like yeah, turbines. I mean, the turbines at the other end of the engine or it's something you wear in your head are you so. expecting these journalists to know the difference <laughs> come on anyway yeah, the well, uh, interview the lady that she interviewed was actually still on the airplane uh, and of course she was using her apple uh, earbuds and that's why you could hear that little you know scraping against her her uh, top um anyway uh so yeah this is kind of a big deal this uh, although it really doesn't really happen that often uh, but the uh, the number four, as you as Captain Nick so rightly said, uh, the uh, compressor and uh, fan and basically the front third of the engine uh, just blew off. In yeah, what, what a lot of people don't know is there's a little butterfly nut on the front, and when you take the cone off, there's a, a butterfly nut we check when we do the walk around, and if that butterfly nut comes unscrewed during the flight, then the whole front of the engine flies off and. That's probably what happened. Wait, so have you, you actually taken the cone on the <laughs> pew flight? <laughs> well, it's pretty, pretty complicated walk around. <laughs> I mean, really? Don't you check your How exactly do you nuts? accomplish that? <laughs> you know, yeah, I always check my nuts before we fly. Yeah, quite right. I mean, How do you check your check nuts on the walk around? Yeah. <laughs> okay, I think that Captain Nick is kidding us a bit. Just there, yeah. Uh, like a but failure. I, I bet that they wish they had checked that butterfly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It yeah, looks like so a shaft failure, and the uh, the the front few stages uh, fell off. So there you go. Yeah, 
took a bit of the cowling with it, but that's just uh, that's just friendable, you know. Stuff. Well, it's better to be salted than roasted nuts. There you go. Um, so uh, yeah, uh, the the crew obviously lost an engine. Whether they lost any ancillary systems, I did see a few dinks on the. Uh, Leading edge flaps, the slats, uh, obviously caused by a little bit of debris that probably flew past. Um, but uh, it looks like they got everything dangling for the approach satisfactorily. So uh, I guess as far as the crew was concerned, the pilots, it was a relatively straightforward three-engine approach. Apparently, uh, the thing was still dropping pieces uh, as they landed because they said they had to close the runway for a while to pick well, up I some stuff. I suspect there was a certain amount of debris just jammed in the front of the engine and as they slowed down so the sb there that was holding it in place mm -hmm. uh, you know it would have just fallen out on the floor so uh, that makes sense yeah uh, i have to take exception with the passenger's comment that it, uh, goose bay is a dinky airport it's not that small of an airport in fact uh, i've been to goose bay many times as the uh, Air Force uses, the U.S. Air Force uses that base quite a bit for staging and uh, doing uh, missions and operations uh, over to Europe and uh, Greenland. Iceland. Yeah, I'm sure. I'm sure. Just in reference to the amount of passenger. Uh, yeah, not a lot of passenger traffic. No. That's for and sure. especially if you're from L.A. You know, yeah, you're used to going to airports. Well, it's not Los Angeles International Airport, that's not, for sure. Not exactly. I'll give you that. No, it's not, not exactly. That. But it is a very common uh, Atlantic diversion airport. So uh, always, uh, if we're doing a uh, a route that's going somewhere like uh, LA or San Fran, almost always we'll have Goose as our um, first diversion on the Canadian side. Uh, she was saying that you know, she had they had already been there for a couple of hours waiting to hear something about how they were going to continue their journey to Los Angeles. And two flights were dispatched to Goose Bay to pick up the passengers and take them there. An Air France Boeing 777-300 and a, uh, an airline that I've never heard of. Um, Nolinor, N-O-L-I-N-O-R, uh, 737-300 was used as well to uh, take the passengers to their final destination of Los Angeles. So uh, the Canadian TSB reported that they have dispatched a team of investigators to Goose Bay to collect evidence and assess the occurrence. So I think this happened, when did this happen on Saturday? I believe it was Saturday. I think so. so on Saturday, I was still in Japan and I was also traveling to LAX. These people spent probably 12 hours on the ground there before I left Japan. And I still managed to get to LA before one of the flights, one of their replacement flights, just to yes. say how long they were Steph for the win. On the <laughs> I mean, that's a heck of a, a long time to be delayed. Yeah, it so. is. It yeah. is. Especially but for uh, California people, because the world oh revolves around them. You know how that goes. <laughs> yeah. I'm one of those people, no, and I understand. No, 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 no offense. <laughs> no offense taken. Listeners. Trust me. Yeah. No offense taken at all. I was a bit surprised that Goose didn't have steps. I, I because uh, the the lower deck is not much higher than a conventional um, airliner. Um, yeah, that was a dubious comment. I think. You know, I you know they they have, I think I read somewhere that said, well, that really wasn't true. They do have air stairs that can service 
the size area. Does it have to do more with customs or immigration problems? I would, I would you, imagine. Yeah. 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 Making an unplanned uh, stop in a country that you weren't planning on being in. Yeah. 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 That sounds more reasonable to me. And also, they may, they may not have um, you know, very sophisticated facilities for 300 people just arriving out of nowhere. It might be more comfortable for them on the plane. So that's what they decided to do. Yeah, the facilities they have there are the uh, dormitories that we used to stay in uh, when I was in the military. And for us, we're kind of used to those kind of accommodations. For your average passenger, no. Yeah, be you'd be it. better off in a nice comfy seat in a nice warm airplane. Yep. Uh, some tragic news here in the United States um, just, what, two days ago? Uh, some wacky um, psycho started killing uh, dozens. Uh, what was the last count I think I saw was 59. Killed 59 people at a country music, uh, country western music concert in Las Vegas. And uh, he was firing from the Mandalay Bay Hotel, 32nd floor. Uh, five more than 500 people injured, and um, the reason why it's somewhat aviation related is that the Mandalay Bay and where this event was taking place is right next to the Las Vegas International Airport. Uh, one of our uh, listeners, Richard uh, Richard Nash, wrote us uh, today. Hi all, I'm watching a video from Vass Aviation on YouTube. It's the Las Vegas Tower during the shooting. The tower controller holding all departures, but clearing everything to land. Every time an aircraft calls up their position, he replies with wind calm, runway 26 left, clear to land. There must have been three to four aircraft in front of each plane that is cleared to land. So how does that work? Is it the pilot's responsibility to keep an eye out for when the aircraft in front clears the runway? In the UK, the tower would say something like number three, continue approach. And then they would get the clear to land call when the runway is clear be great to hear you and Nick discuss the differences between U.S. and U.K. procedures. Love the show and all that blah, blah, blah. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you, Richard. That was heartfelt. <laughs> it kind of checks me up a little <laughs> yeah, bit. Um, blah, yeah, blah, blah, blah. <laughs> yada, yada, yada. So um, I pulled up this uh, video and I'm, I'm starting at the about the five minute point. And uh, I, when I heard about this tragedy, I didn't even think about the fact that the airport's right there and how it would have affected and did affect the uh, the arrivals and departures there. And let me play just a little bit of it because I think it's kind of interesting. And uh, we're going to answer Rich's, Richard's question, but we're also going to talk a little bit more about this whole thing. Pick up now, leading 487, uh, left base. The final, 13 out for 26 left. Leading 487, Las Vegas, Winston, 26 left, third lane. Third lane, 26 left, leading 487. Any county mobile, uh, mobile vehicles, I need to talk to you. All right, I need an update on uh, any individuals on the airport. Were they um, armed? Like, was it armed or was it uh, people trying to escape the situation across the street? Tower Southwest 1738, Las Vegas Tower, Winds Calmer with 26 left, put the land. Put the land, 26 left, Southwest 1738. Express West 3497, the plan is to depart you and turn you immediately south as soon as you're airborne. Can you handle it? Yeah, just as long as the uh, runway is secure. Yeah, the runway is clear and secure. Uh, 
you'll see when you get out there, there's a situation out to the west, and I do want to do the part. I want to, I want you on your way, uh, but I don't, I, I don't want you uh, straight out to the west. I think uh, south turnout would be the best. Sounds good, Joe. Southwest 3497. All right, Southwest 3497, only 26 right, line up and wait, and it'll be 190 heading and maintaining 7,000. 190 heading, 7,000, line up and wait, only 26 right, Southwest 3497. County Mobile 8 or any County Mobile on frequency. I'm just confirming here the uh, intersection of 26 right and the 19s are clear for uh, use for departures. Okay, what do you think about uh, 26 left? It says appears to be safe. Roger. Southwest 3497, continue holding. We are just uh, double checking that runway and making sure it's clear. Southwest 3497 will uh, hold. Uh, mobile 7 Mobile uh, 7, I think it was, proceed on runway uh, 26 right and runway 26 left. Your discretion. Southwest 3497, I got an update. The, uh, there's some personnel on one of the upper levels of the Mandalay Bay. So departing might be a bit uh, dangerous. And. Uh, we still got a few minutes for the runway check here, and we may not be landing anymore here for the next uh, few hours. So let me know what you want to do. Okay. Uh, I will put the uh, link to this uh, entire video in the show notes. And uh, the nice thing about uh, what uh, VAS Aviation does with uh, their video or videos is they put a lot of uh, helpful graphics and you can kind of see here they've taken the time to show the uh, picture of the airport, the Mandalay Bay Hotel, uh, the uh, area where the concert took place and they've highlighted it with, you know, various colors and everything else. And I mean, it is pretty much absolutely right next to the uh, runway one nine and uh, ones at the airport. Although most of the activity for the uh, airliners were uh, using two, six left two, six, right. But, but um, kind of taking off in the direction of the strip and Mandalay Bay, like directly. I mean, it was farther right. to the South, but still in that general direction. Yeah. And so like when this whole thing starts, I, I started about the five minute point, but at the very beginning, uh, it starts off with the tower saying that there is an active shooter on the runways. <laughs> it's like, oh, excuse me. So they didn't know exactly what was happening. They just heard, you know, it was chaos. Obviously, nobody knew what was going on. And they said that uh, they thought at first that something was happening, an active shooter actually on the airport property itself. And then I finally I, I guess they finally figured out that uh, this was happening at, uh, on the strip. And uh but uh, that was an interesting one. Uh, yeah, it might be a little bit dangerous, so I suggest that you turn to the left when you take off. And I can imagine the uh, conversation in that Southwest cockpit like, excuse me, <laughs> what? what is going on? Somebody's firing uh, you know, weapons out of the 32nd floor of a high-rise hotel? Uh, I don't think so. Well, you know, it's kind of one of those situations where, you know, <laughs> if there's not a lot of information you don't know where the actual danger is occurring. Is it more dangerous to stay on the ground or is it more dangerous to get the heck out of town as fast as possible? Um, I don't know. You know, 
um, in this case, it sounds like, it, you know, maybe it was just luck that they ended up as far away on the airport property as they could have from where things were occurring. And then they ended up at least staying for the, the moment. So, yeah, I think well, shortly it, after I didn't listen to the entire recording, but I think at some point they finally say, okay, forget it. The airport is closed. Nobody's arriving and nobody's departing anymore. Now well, to, uh, yes, Dana. I'll continue, Jeff. I'm sorry. Go ahead. No, no, please. No, I, I mean, I just want to, you know, Richard asked a very specific question about every time an aircraft land, aircraft calls up, the position he replies with wind calm, runway two six left and clear to land, whereas he's comparing to, uh, you know, over in, in, in UK. Um, at this point, more than likely, the air traffic controllers on the, the final approach controllers have cleared that aircraft for a visual approach. So thus, yes, they are, they are really involved with, with making sure that they have visual uh, confirmation with the airport, with the traffic in front of them. So they are indeed um, responsible for maintaining a visual separation if they've been cleared for a visual approach. Whereas if you're over in the UK, would say number three, which would indicate to me that that person is still, or that aircraft is still on a, uh, an instrument approach until they are cleared to land. So just answering Rich's specific question, um, and I just want to put that in there. I think that the answer is actually more simple than that, Dana. Um, the When you watch this video, uh, right at the beginning, it says that the video and audio has been edited and shortened for content. So the space, the amount of time between these airplanes coming in, and if you listen to the, the, the video earlier than where I started, uh, several airplanes are coming in and landing on 2-6 left. And I think that the person that did this video just compressed it, as I do a lot of times when I play uh, audio on on this show. So I think that uh, there was a lot more time between these arrivals. Number two, whether they were on a visual or an instrument approach, because Dana and I know that in Atlanta, flying the uh, precision radar monitored approaches, the PRM approaches, we could be number three or four. Uh, and still be cleared to land, and uh, we are we are not responsible for the uh, separation between airplanes. Air traffic control is, but in our country, we can be cleared to land way, you know, like twenty miles out, and uh, it's not a requirement for us to have the airplane directly ahead of us clear the runway before we receive landing clearance. I'm not sure yeah, what and, it's like in the UK. Yeah, and and it's you know it's kind of that's what's leaning towards that depends on what i mean if we're talking to approach control and they say do you have the airport in sight and they'll say you will say yes so we have proceeding traffic in sight they'll say clear for the visual approach that's what i'm talking about is right. that i mean that's true but but in this case i mean even in instrument approaches i mean ha we we fly these prms all the time and so we're not on a visual approach uh right. and let's say if the weather is really low and it's there's really a good reason to have these prms and in, in effect you as soon as you contact tower and again it's usually around 20 to eight, 18 to 20 miles out they'll clear you to land even though there are like two or three airplanes ahead of you so i think that's his main question is how can tower clear you to land when there are still several airplanes ahead of you and the answer is because that's the way the procedures are set up. In but they don't two. always do that, Jeff. They some sometimes will say, you know, continue. Very rarely. In my experience, almost 
99% of the time when I check in with tower and monitor the uh, PRM monitor frequency, as soon as I check in, they get landing, landing clearance to us. Even though there's a couple airplanes ahead of us. I know that's my experience. Maybe yours is different. Well, but, that, uh, that happened to me today coming in this morning. I mean, we had, we're landing to the east with the, the sun rising with, with heavy haze and we checked in and we were not clear to land. Okay. So, we, well, we your experience is different than mine, but, uh, okay. I mean, I, I hear it all the time. Um, and it's, uh, in this case, because we're not on a visual approach, um, approach control is responsible for keeping our separation. Well, and then true. if at some point we were clear to visual, then yes, we are responsible for it. But I think that, I, I think the nut of his question or the, what he's trying to get at is he's, he's asserting that in the UK, you're not going to get a landing clearance from tower until the preceding aircraft is clear of the runway. Is that true, Nick? Yeah, that's exactly right. Uh, so you won't get a clearance until you are, the runway is yours. Uh, so you won't get a clearance with a guy ahead of you. Uh, and when he's on the runway, you may get a clearance as he swings clear, but they usually then give a proviso, clear to land, one ahead vacating. And they have to obey quite strict rules on that before they will clear you to do that. Um, so generally speaking, you're waiting for your clearance. And it can come quite late. It can come you know, well um, inside your normal instrument minima, um, it can come at 50 feet. Uh, so uh, you, you just have to be sort of prepared for the fact that uh, you might get a late clearance. And they'll often say that uh, you'll get a late clearance. There's one on the runway. Um, the advantage of that is that um, uh, you are confident that when you get a clearance to land, the runway is clear and it is yours. Um, the uh, disadvantage is that if someone blocks the frequency checking in, just when you're waiting for a clearance, the control, you might not hear it. But that is the safest way because if you don't hear a clearance to land, you go around. Uh, the bad news is if you're using the system that is used in the United States, you get a clearance to land at 20 miles, reliant on the controller stepping and telling you to go around if he spots something. If that transmission's blocked, that's much more dangerous because uh, if you land on a runway that has something on it, then obviously that that is a distinct danger. But see, we're no. trained to land with uh, all kinds of airplanes on the runway at the same time. <laughs> just kidding. That's a, 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 a <laughs> well. I was just about to say the land and hold short <laughs> procedures you guys use. Yes, in theory, you can land with someone. Yeah, you know, uh, beyond the land and hold short. A point whereas uh, foreign carriers uh, like us are not permitted to use that procedure at the states oh so you just well enable i mean dr steph and yep. i know that it's the wild wild west over here so well it can be i mean i still get guys who aren't familiar with the uh, united states operations telling me this shouldn't happen they shouldn't give us clearance to land <laughs> but i've been doing it for so it's long just the way it, just the way yeah. it is over here. i mean even <laughs> exactly you know right. general aviation flying we get that too you've come in into control airport and mm -hmm. i've been number three to land cleared so that's why it's always good to if you can you know if it's a vmc to be looking out your windscreen and yes. uh, look for oh, other absolutely. airplanes. Yeah, I mean, yeah. Uh, I, and I, I do the great majority of my approaches in the States. I insist on doing an instrument approach because that's obviously 
more compatible with our procedures mm-hmm. and what we're more used to. Um, and on an instrument approach, I will, like you, you're mentioning on your PRM approaches, I'll still be given a clearance to land with two or three ahead, even though it is now the controller's responsibility, not mine, to make sure the runway is clear when I get there. But I think any prudent pilot, and I think that you would all agree with me, is keeping track not just listening to when they mention your call sign, but you're actually listening to everyone else out there who is using that frequency and keeping something in your mind, that situational awareness. Okay, that flight, they've landed, they've cleared of her tower, tell them to hold short of the next runway and monitor this frequency. If you're not doing that, well, I think that that is not a very smart thing. You should no, no, that's be exactly right. That, because, that. because no controller is infallible, no pilot is right. infallible. We all need to make sure that we're operating uh, onto a safe runway. So, yeah, I think uh, every pilot needs to be able to do that just for his own peace of mind. If nothing. And one of the things I always do, uh, passing through 1,000 feet, although it's not a required call out, when the 1,000 foot call comes, I say clear to land, which is a requirement, either clear to land or not clear to land. And the second thing I always say is the runway is clear or there's still traffic halfway down or the traffic ahead is taking the high speed or the second. So I'm always verbalizing, you know, whether there's traffic ahead and if it's clear of the runway or not. Um, again, that's not a requirement, but uh, I just always remember the uh, terrible incident at Atlanta where an Eastern Airlines uh, 727, I believe, came and landed on 26 right, and there was a small twin uh, still on the runway, and they they just basically blew right through the uh, the uh, I think it was a King Air and killed everybody aboard that airplane. And uh, then, of course, the more uh, popular, not popular, but the one that more, most people hear about and remember is the one that happened in Los Angeles, U.S. Air, uh, hitting the uh, uh, the regional airliner. And many people died in that one. So I always think of those. And so uh, I always, you know, add that extra uh, call out when I'm going through a thousand feet, uh, just to kind of keep myself uh, cognizant of what is happening and whether there's somebody still on the runway or not. And in Atlanta, <laughs> it's uh, it happens quite often. In fact, we even we have crossing traffic, especially if you're using the uh, one of the southern runways. Uh, a lot of times they have uh, airplanes crossing the runway midfield or whatever. And so I also verbalize that. Yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, I, I do the same, but mainly so that my oppo beside me uh, knows that I'm aware of the aircraft. And if he hadn't spotted it, then it'll draw his eyes to it. Because in the, in the you know, twilight, uh, when you're facing a bit of a sun, as Dana was, uh, it's hard to see sometimes. Uh, and aircraft that are on the glide slope ahead of you they're not moving relative to you uh so they're effectively stationary and even when they're on the runway they're not moving very fast so uh relative to you so that they're not easy for your eyes sometimes to pick out in poor light yeah okay um i think we're finished with that one uh thank you richard for for uh asking the question regarding that i can't again i think in this case uh, it was because of the compression and editing that uh, the folks at Vass uh, Aviation did with this video. and But at least we did get a chance to talk about the differences that we have in the U.S. and the U.K. regarding when clearance to land is uh, given. 
And uh, I, I'm not sure. I think each system has its advantages and disadvantages. And uh, perhaps one day we can all be together and do the same exact thing. When IKEA mm -hmm. rules the world. When we so. convert all of our temperatures to Celsius and yes. miles and nice. feet. To <laughs> don't hold your breath. That would be nice. <laughs> so basically, it's never going to happen. I, I, don't, <laughs> I don't get why Britain has miles per hour, but they drive on the wrong side of the road. Okay, moving on. We're going to start with uh, this. Is, hang, hang on a minute, Steph. You, you already measure things in kilos, and you already measure things in centimeters in the medical profession. Yeah, absolutely. I'm familiar with Absolutely. That. So you're there already. So the rest of the Americans need to catch up. Mm. Yes, but outside of work, I would never. It's strictly strictly work. Well, yeah, you see, Liz says, US go metric? Never. Never. You, you are really, you're a long way there. I mean, it's only actually a few sort of stick in the muds that are still hanging. Well, I can't wait there. to go to the bar after work and have 500 milliliters of uh, ale. Okay. Really? <laughs> it should uh, sound a whole lot better than millimeters. Wait a minute. Same. They don't say that. That's the point. See the irony in what I just said? <laughs> okay, let's uh, continue on with some more news, and this is sad news. Monarch Airlines has ceased operations with immediate effect, leaving over 100,000 customers stranded and 300,000 future bookings cancelled. It's the largest UK airline to enter administration, according to the country's Civil Aviation Authority. The British government has asked CAA to charter aircraft to bring back stranded customers currently overseas. I'm not sure what an ur line is or aircraft. Huh? From I don't know. <laughs> I can't even give them credit for it because we have no idea where this came from. Well, it's someone it, we, from Ireland, I suspect. I think so. It came it came down from heaven into my <laughs> computer. And uh, also, uh, we have a statement from Monarch Airlines CEO. It's really uh, probably easier to talk about how much we were projecting to lose next year. And the figure was well over £100 million. And uh, we couldn't figure out a way of um, reducing those losses significantly. Um, either by selling the short-haul airline or, or by um, improving it. And we tried um, everything and, and asked for expert advice from respected consulting firms, but we just couldn't find a way in the end. And, and we reached the end of the road uh, late on Saturday night, made the decision and filed on, on Monday morning. Sad news. Uh, the UK leisure carrier Monarch filed for insolvency in Britain's biggest ever airline collapse leaving the government to arrange the return of 110,000 tourists and marking the third failure of a major European operator in five months. The airline and Monarch Travel Group were placed in an administration leading to the suspension of the Luton, Luton England-based company's operating license, according to a statement on Monday, yesterday. Future flights and holidays have been canceled and won't be rescheduled, adding a further 300,000 people. This is just so sad. And, and again, this kind of hits home. Uh, we, we take it personally at uh, uh, the APG and the APG community because we know a very fine person, uh, a big part of our community who is directly affected by this shutdown. 
Yeah, I was chatting to uh, Captain Al, who I guess it won't matter if we mention who he... No, uh, Royal Jet, Monarch, doesn't matter anymore. Royal Jet, he used to call it, but uh, Monarch was his airline. And, of course, um, Al is uh, also uh, the Airline Pilots Union, Balpa, representative uh, for Monarch. So he was spending uh, an awful lot of his time and breaking the news to uh, the union members and trying to uh, assure them that what efforts they could make were being made to uh, find them future employment, uh, giving them as much information as they could, etc., uh, rather than thinking of himself. So I spoke to him a few times. He he'd been in uh, discussions with the uh, airline for the previous week, uh, and. Um, the writing was on the wall, but they were always hoping that uh, someone would step in and uh, find some use for the airline, take it over, refund it, whatever it takes. Um, but the, really, the thing that uh, caused it to happen on the day it did was that's when their, their atoll uh, license ran out. Now, in the UK, we've uh, had so many disasters with in the distant past of airlines going bust that left people stranded and out of pocket, um, the Civil Aviation Authority decided to put uh, a £2.50 surcharge on all airline tickets that were taken out for holiday makers. Um, and um, that went, all that money for all the airlines and all those flights went into a big bucket so that should this happen again, any uh, atoll registered airline or holiday a booking company or whatever uh, can then use those funds, or at least the government, the CAA, will use those funds to repatriate all the holiday makers and, under certain circumstances, refund people who had booked holidays who now could no longer go on them. So th that is quite a big bucket of money, and uh, pretty quickly uh, the CAA had um, chartered aircraft and was bringing people home and uh you know there were people who were applying for the the ability to get their money refunded if they hadn't yet gone on holiday so i'm glad to see that that system was in place and it was working so it's not like a huge raft of people have been left out of pocket because some people may not have booked their tickets um through monarch who were at all they may have gone to a travel agent who wasn't uh, license with Atoll. So they wouldn't have coverage. But if they had paid on a credit card, then the credit card company will usually take responsibility for that and they'll have uh, their money back or at least some of it. So there's, you know, it's very sad for the people involved, but generally speaking, not too many of them will be badly out of pocket. Uh, my thoughts, of course, and I'm sure you're the same, Jeff and uh, Dana. And Steph, uh, with the employees, you know, they're often the forgotten people in these disasters because uh, they uh, have been going along quite happily. They've got mortgages and families and all the financial commitments, and then all of a sudden the rug is pulled from under them. Uh, once the administrators move in, there's a good chance that uh, their kind of last month's pay may not be paid um, because uh, all of a sudden all the assets of the airline are freezed. There's no money coming out. Uh, and it's a long time before they decide uh, how the assets of the airline are going to be spread out to all the various debtors. Uh, and uh, they may only get, you know, 10 pence in the pound or or whatever it is, uh, a fraction of the money that might be owed to them in outstanding pay. 
Uh, I suspect there are some questions about pensions. I don't know what the situation with that is at all. Um, but um, those are the people that uh, I always feel for because they're always right up to the last minute, right up to midnight, Al was saying that um, he was still hoping that, you know, something might happen. And then, of course, the hammer comes down and it's all too late. And uh, then the sudden realization that you don't have a job to go to the next morning. Um, didn't yeah, didn't the same sort of thing happen about a year ago that they ended up getting the financial resources necessary to continue operations? Uh, that's exactly right. Yeah. Um, yeah. And uh, the CA had already put some aircraft in position just in case uh, Monarch did go under a year ago and they weren't needed in the end. So that's fine. But this year, unfortunately they were. And, and Monarch is not a, a sort of a, a new upstart airline. It's been going for over 49 years. It was coming up to its 50th year uh, next April, I think. So that's a long time for an airline to be going. And it's so sad to see one of that uh, nature going under. Well, especially as you mentioned, you know, the employees were always all feeling for it. But when you know personally, like such a, a great man like Captain Al, and it just really makes my heart hurt. But I know that he's a very sharp guy and he's going to, you know, he's going to land on his feet and everything is going to be okay for him in the long term. But uh, wow. I, well, I the just, thing that uh, I thought was at least heartening, and I know it's not a, a you know, it's never the ideal thing, but at least on social media, it was really nice to see kind of the aviation community and former competitor airlines um, kind of speaking up and saying, you know, if you're looking for a job, here's who you contact. And, you know, the point is certainly made that, you know, perhaps they end up at the, the bottom of the pile. But I think the intent is there to make sure everyone has a job to go to at, at some point. So, um yeah, not not ideal there, but at least it was uh, certainly a lot of nice gestures and and yeah, um, not well, even our, just gestures, but I think actual intent to to get our aviation community and, is is a tight knit group. It is yeah. you know kind of a small little slice of uh, the world population, and uh, I think we we do have a natural tendency to want to take care of each other. Sure. So. Yeah, unfortunately, the bean counters in various airlines don't necessarily feel the same way. However, it was, you're quite right, Steph, great to see that, um, uh, for example, Virgin Atlantic have uh, opened a fast track line for uh, Monarch uh, pilots to apply, uh, and um, their recruitment will be looked at uh, very quickly. Now, after all, I mean, Monarch are a, were a well-respected pilot group uh and uh they're quality pilots um and of course is the cream of the crop uh, you know any airline would be uh, delighted to have him on board um a 10 year captain for heaven's sake uh sad thing is of course that doesn't matter which airline he goes to unless he starts taking contracts in china or somewhere he's going to be joining his next airline uh at the bottom of the seniority list as a first officer with two rings so um that's that's the sad reality of probably what will happen so i don't know what al will make regards choices but uh, that could be uh, where he ends up well isn't it not possible or isn't it possible for him to I, I know there are airlines out there i believe that you can be hired as a captain it may not be one 
convenient to being based at Manchester, but yeah, there uh, are, but they're, they're not very, it's not, they're not that common, Jeff. You okay. normally have to get a contract with a uh, company that positions you. Uh, and then they say, right, well, we're looking for a, uh, you know, six month, um, a three twenty captain operating in China. This is the money. Do you want to go? And that's yeah. the way you'll get it. And there are some airlines that occasionally will offer direct entry captain jobs, but, uh, uh, you know, they're, they're not, they're not always apparent. The, the major established airlines that Al might want to move on to, yeah. um, they're yeah, generally speaking seniority system. Yeah. So he'll yeah. come at the bottom and it'll take him a number of years before he gets his chance at a command. Well, Al, I think, uh, I can speak for everyone in the APG community. The, uh, the food and uh, beer and wine, they're on us. Absolutely. Yeah. Yep. Wow. It's the future. Okay, let's talk about Elon Musk. Some positive, uplifting news uh, before we uh, head over to the feedback. Um, Elon Musk, everybody knows Elon, right? Um, he has proposed, you know, he's the guy that, uh, has, you know, is a, a head of Tesla, uh, you know, the, uh, the cars that are electric and, uh, you know, self-driving cars and all that kind of stuff. And also the very successful, uh, SpaceX, uh, company and the Falcon nine and the rockets that are being launched and the first stage is coming back and landing on a barge. And it's pretty amazing stuff that, uh, that's going on. He's also uh, involved with doing something called a hyperloop. And, uh, the latest thing is, uh, well, at the end of his address as SpaceX, um, addressed address, uh, not too long ago. And let me play a little excerpt. Um, if you, if you build a ship that's capable of going to Mars, well, what if you take that same ship and go from one place to another on Earth. So we, we looked at that, and the results are quite interesting. Let's take a look at that. Okay, and then they play this video, which we'll put a link to in the show notes. And the reason why I'm not going to play it right now is because it's just music. <laughs> but uh, you get an idea from this video what he his... played a music video. What was it? Well, it's sort of like a music star? video, but it has some. <laughs> it kind of gives you a visual of what his great like an idea animation, is. right? Like a no, it's not an animation. Oh yeah, it oh. is. You're right. Yeah, it is an yeah. animation. Very cool, by the way. Very amazing idea. But he continues. So, yeah, so the 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 great thing about going to space is there's no friction. So uh, once you're out of the atmosphere you will go, it will be smooth as silk, no turbulence, nothing. There's no weather, there's no, there's no atmosphere. And uh, you can get to, to most long distance places, like I said, in less than half an hour. Um, and if we're building this thing to go to the moon and Mars, then why not go to other places on Earth as well? All right, thank you. Okay. There is his uh, address to his uh, his fan base uh, regarding this new great idea, which is uh, proposing to use one of SpaceX's uh, SpaceX's forthcoming mega rocket, codenamed BFR, Big Effing Rocket. I like their uh, code name. That's yes. my favorite part of this whole article. I mean, they actually in this article, 
<laughs> spell out that word that I cannot, the, the F-bomb, uh, to lift a massive spaceship into orbit around Earth. Uh, the ship would then settle down on floating landing pads near major cities. Both the new rocket and spaceship are currently theoretical, though Musk did say that he hopes to begin construction on the rocket in the next six to nine months. And so in the video that you'll watch, because you'll click on it in the show notes, uh, illustrates the idea. Passengers take a large boat from a dock in New York City to a floating launch pad out in the water. There, they board the same rocket that Musk wants to use to send humans to Mars by 2024. That's not happening. But instead of heading off to another planet once they leave the Earth's atmosphere, the ship separates and breaks off towards another city, Shanghai. Just 39 minutes. And some 7,000 miles later, the ship re-enters the atmosphere and touches down on another floating pad, much like the way SpaceX lands its Falcon 9 rockets at sea. Other routes proposed in the video include Hong Kong to Singapore in 22 minutes, London to Dubai or New York in 29 minutes, and Los Angeles to Toronto in 24 minutes. Uh, so... Uh, anyway, this article. So, where was on. this technology over the past two weeks when I could have really benefited? Yeah. Well, from. you would not have enjoyed your shower, oh, no. right? Yes. Well, if okay. they can build you know, that in, I, I only need five minutes in the shower, right? So, <laughs> plenty of time. Well, this article. <laughs> That's what she said. <laughs> this article from Jalopnik. Uh, is great. Um, let's see, who's the author of this? I, I, I think I cut that out. Uh, sorry, uh, whoever wrote this. Very clever writing. Uh, last week, the always exciting Elon Musk announced a plan to launch soft, moist human passengers in his new planned rockets to fly on suborbital trips from city to city, allowing travel between almost any major city on Earth in under an hour. It's a fascinating idea, but not a new one. In fact, Ronald Reagan mentioned the basic idea in his 1986 State of the Union address. So, yes, this nation remains fully committed to America's space program. We're going forward with our shuttle flights. We're going forward to build our space station. And we're going forward with research on a new Orient Express that could, by the end of the next decade, take off from Dulles Airport, accelerate up to 25 times the speed of sound, attaining low Earth orbit, or flying to Tokyo within two hours. That Orient Express would become the National Airspace Plane, NASP. A planned technology demonstrator of the passenger craft was known as the Rockwell X-30. The National Airspace, Airspace Plane is actually quite different technically than what Elon made his video about, but conceptually is the same idea. Go places on Earth quicker by going through space. And uh, this article continues uh, talking about the fact that in the proposed uh, new Orient Express that Reagan was talking about, you know, you uh, it takes a little bit longer. But in uh, Musk's uh, idea, you have to take a big boat to a launch pad and then board the rocket. And I'm not sure exactly how that's going to work. And then you end up going to wherever you're going in the world and landing out on a barge out in the middle of the ocean somewhere. And then you crash. Yeah. You don't want to be anywhere near a city. And then, <laughs> uh, and then you take another boat to a dock to, and so by the time you compare the time <laughs> that it takes in either system, they're pretty comparable, I think. But he says, uh, but 
there's another difference that you have to be uh, cognizant of. Uh, rocket travel is not quite the same as airline travel. Uh, he talks about in this article um, that you're going to be laying on your back uh, in your seat uh, for the vertical rocket launch. And the closest analogs to what Musk wants to do with the uh, BFR are likely the Mercury flights, since they're a, a vertical rocket launch, unlike the Soyuz, Soyuz one, intentionally suborbital. And uh, let's see, these talks, talks about the G-forces that you're going to experience in a vertical rocket launch. Um, the Mercury capsule uh, sustained a maximum of 6.3 Gs on launch. And then for re-entry, 11.6 G's. So I would <laughs> be passed out at that point. That's just a lot. So you know. Most humans will pass out at 5 G's if they're yeah. not trained and in physical shape to do this kind of thing. Now, they did mention in this article that uh, uh, the space shuttle uh, ended up uh, subjecting their crews to a maximum of about 3 G's, which is manageable. But, you know, look at the people that you're traveling with on the uh, airline flights that you're you've flown on. There are a lot of people that are not going to be able to sustain three G's of forces. So there's oh, some. Sure. I know. Yeah, many, <laughs> many people who could not do it. Yeah. And they're talking about for doing it for the same price of an economy airline ticket. Of course. I believe oh, that. What? Yeah. I, yeah. I'd be willing to wager it costs a whole lot more than the actual <laughs> ticket value of that first class trip that I took. Probably a lot. Yeah. yeah. I would just like to recommend he concentrates on digging a tunnel through the earth because that's going to be quicker. And don't forget, you, the first half of the journey is free because you're falling under gravity. Well, he is. That That is one of his what? great ideas. Uh, you know, I, I love, I love I Elon. He, you know, I've, I've heard that he actually believes that this world that we're living in is not real. It's a like a simulated you know, environment like or, matrix. It's like, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Like the matrix. I mean, he, uh, seriously, he believes that. So when you come up with an idea like this, you know, it's not unusual, but <laughs> we shall see. We could be wrong. So a lot we of people poop, bring it. We'll yeah. It. A lot of people poo pooed his, I, uh, his other ideas. So, you know, could be he, that this he is the Tesla testimony car. Yeah. Yes. Well, that, that works. Yeah. Mm -hmm. That's good. Yeah. I don't know. Unless you're uh, living in Houston and uh, your entire you city is flooded. <laughs> you're, oh, okay. not going to, you're not going <laughs> to get very far in your electric car, are you? Uh, that's true. Yeah. Okay. Uh, let's see. That is enough, I believe, of the news segment, which uh, took quite some time, but I think it was worth it. And now it's time for the best part of your show. Your show? Yes. That's what I said. Your show. Captain, incoming message. Because really, the APG crew would agree with me, I believe, that it, this is your show, those of you listening. and uh, Yeah, it's not like an average conference call. We're actually doing this for you guys. <laughs> yeah. And it's also because we like, we're, we're good friends and we like hanging out with each other every week. That's kind of a, sure. the Hi. cherry on top. I'm just kidding. <laughs> well, well, some of us. <laughs> some of us. <laughs> forget, forget Stephanie. Okay. I love you guys. Uh, <laughs> we love you too. Uh, let's see. This was sent in by Larry Geezer Gregory in Tulsa, Oklahoma. Here's a great article from Fly Magazine by Martha Lunken. 
And uh, I'm not going to read the first part of it where she talks about her uh, – her beloved, I think, Cessna 180, 72 Bravo. Uh, but the bulk of her article had to do with um, nicknames for uh, airplanes. And uh, she says, grounded, bored, and pissed off at my 72 Bravo. I was mindlessly playing around on the internet when I stumbled onto some websites with the clever, charming, less than charming, and sometimes downright nasty names pilots bestow on their airplanes, as well as explanations for why we call stuff what we do. I thought this one was interesting. Cockpit is allegedly from the British nautical term. And now I'm going to mispronounce this. I want to say coxswain, coxswain, but it's, how, how would you pronounce it? Coxswain. Coxswain. Thank you. Like yeah. when crew, like that, is that the same term? Well, it's, uh, it's a pit for yeah. It's it's the same term as the the little person at the back of a yes uh, eight man boat. Right. He's the but different yeah. yeah. Okay. Good. Yeah, and she said, but don't you agree? A pit for fighting cocks is the more likely source. <laughs> yeah. Mm, probably not. Absolutely. An autopilot is George because its inventor was George de Beeson, but the Brits think it's in honor of King George who, of course, owned all British airplanes in World War II. Now, do you Brits really think that? No. Okay. I've, I've, ne I've never heard that uh, correlation. Yeah, I hadn't either. So that's why I wanted to see if that was true with our uh, APG crew Brit representative. Um, jet engines are blowtorches, and the area on the ground where a sonic boom is audible is a boom carpet. Isn't that a great name for a heavy metal band or what? Best of, it is. Uh, best of all, I think, is calling uh, an aerobatic airplane a vomit comet. Back in the 60s, when we were smaller in size, the uh, Cessna 150s were uh, flown, were known as the one filthy buck and a half and cesspit. <laughs> the, the aerobatic version was the aerosplat. <laughs> <laughs> and I think it was what aerobat is what they called aerobat. Yeah, yeah. Aerobat. the larger Cessna 172 was a sky chicken, and the <laughs> RG model was the strutless or gutless. I hear gutless a lot still. <laughs> gutless. gutless, yeah. Well, she goes on. We you know we talked about. I think this was because we talked about the uh, nickname for the uh, tomahawk. You know, the tomahawk. Tomahawk. And so uh, Larry said, "Hey, this might uh, be something to discuss on your on your show." I'm not going to go into all the other ones here on the list, but I'm going to put a link to this great article by Martha Lunken in the uh, show notes, so you can read the rest of it. Very well done. Thank you, Larry. Um, I see that Stephen uh, is flying a dentist killer. Yes. That's what they call uh, Oh, the Mooney is a dentist killer because the yeah. Bonanza is a doctor, doctor killer. killer. <laughs> uh, yeah, because uh, dentists obviously don't earn as much as doctors, so they can only <laughs> afford a Mooney. Yes. Uh, what do they call a, a doctor that uh, – oh, never mind. I'm not going to do those jokes because <laughs> it's not really fair at all. <laughs> no, it isn't. No. Because you um, have one here right now. Uh, pardon me? We have one right here right now. We have a dentist with us? No, a doctor. Oh no! It was the joke was actually in favor of the doctor and against the dentist. Okay, okay, I misunderstood. Yeah, no problem. Uh, let's see. Chris sent us a link to a video on YouTube. What's actually the plane of the future? Actually, a very well done um, YouTube video by Wendover Productions, and uh, I suggest you uh, click on the link in the show notes to watch this. But uh, basically, talks about some of these really crazy ideas like. 
you know, airplanes with no windows and no pilots, and then everything is translucent and you can see everything around you and through the airplane and everything else. But, uh, this video basically says, uh, probably not, but, um, we can tell you that this is the airplane of the future. And I, they, I think they spent some time talking about, uh, the new, um, middle market, uh, replacement, uh, aircraft Boeing's, uh, twin aisle, uh, but, you know, more like a narrow body cost airplane, but in a, a wide body twin aisle configuration, that kind of thing. But it's a very well done video. Whether you're a Airbus fanatic or a Boeing fanatic or whatever you are, um, I think it's still worth watching. So thank you, Chris Guru, for sending that in. And moving on quickly here, uh, let's uh, play some audio feedback from one of our favorite people, the Flying Kiwi. Hey, APG crew, it's the uh, Flying Kiwi. Um, You've mercifully probably noted that I haven't um, made some feedback in a wee while, and that's due to the small, dark, secure hole um, I've been put in uh, due to what I do for a living, which is um, incredibly boring, Um, although if I told you about it, I'd have to shoot you. Um, Suffice to say, we are not allowed electronic devices where I am currently working, so... No iPods, no nothing, so I can't even watch uh, uh, the show on YouTube, which is a bit sad, so I actually have to do some work, which is yeah, I'm not really accustomed to. Um, anyway, I've been catching up in the in the den, and it's been uh, lots of fun, um, melting some plastic, so I, I hope uh, uh, Captain Jeff and, and Nick have got their parcels uh, already, um, since you might be playing this sometime in 2018. <laughs> Uh, anyway, uh, the, the purpose of my feedback was to um, elicit a, a question and answer session from, from Dr. Steph. Um, she may not be able to help me, but hopefully she can make suitable soothing noises so I don't panic. Um, I went for my uh, medical the other day, and uh, the ME um, said I was quote-unquote disgustingly healthy, which I took to, uh, to mean a good thing. Um, and uh, he noted that I'd had some surgery that year um, and the surgery was for some sleep apnea I have a mild sleep apnea that I had a sleep study for and went to a specialist and and got my massive nose uh, made bigger on the inside as it is on the outside and so that required a reduction of turbinates and a septoplasty which um, Dr. Steph will probably know all about um, it wasn't particularly pleasant, um, but it seems to have worked. Um, so I, I believe I do not have sleep apnea anymore. However, the CAA think I do, and they have questioned me at length and now require me to do a second sleep study to prove that it's all gone away. Uh, why this is concerning is I've had a bit of a brush with the CAA before um, on medical matters. Um, I had childhood asthma and mistakenly put this down on my CAA medical form when I first became a pilot. And uh, after that, I was um, subjected to shorter reporting periods. I did a whole bunch of things. I had to do peak flow readings, all that sort of rubbish. Um, Every now and again, I'd miss a reporting date, and I'd get a suitably shitty letter from, um, excuse me, um, suitably crappy letter, beep, um, from... uh, the CIA informing me I'd missed the reporting period, etc., 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 and it was quite horrible and laborious. And I then resulted uh, resorted to uh, getting a specialist, an asthma specialist, to write a study up for me and send it off to the CIA to tell them I quite conclusively did not have asthma, of which he agreed to. Um, 
and the CA then sent me back a letter saying, well done for managing your asthma, <laughs> which was really annoying because it was quite expensive. Um, so uh, a couple of years down the track, I actually found a tame ME who I um, didn't take much convincing that I didn't have asthma after blowing my peak flow, which was you know better than normal for my age. Um, and he, he struck that off my, uh, my sheet, which was great. Um, so I'm a bit worried if the sleep apnea or the sleep study, sorry, um, doesn't come back conclusively positive, um, what horrible things the CAA might have me do, you know, sleeping upside down like a bat or something. I don't know. Um, so I am a bit worried. Um, I am taking steps to, to make things better. I, um, am losing weight, which is always good for, for just about everything. Um, I take some magnesium pills at night to stop any sort of restless legs that I might have. Um, I don't drink caffeine after 4pm, um, generally try and eat healthy, uh, which isn't too difficult because I, I like to cook, so um, I try to do all these things, um, but I wonder if Dr. Steph um, knows of anything else that would benefit me. Um, I, I do realise that it's not her speciality and, and doctors don't know everything about everything because uh, they're only human, um, but if you do know of anything that would be nice. Um, or, or just make soothing noises, that would also be good. Like, it, it's all going to be okay. Because <laughs> I am a bit worried, because the CAA here are, are notoriously um, uh, fickle about medical matters, um, having heard more than one horrific story from, from fellow pilots. Um, I've been really enjoying the shows. So like I said, I've been down at the den watching it, and um, I just got to the barleycorn incident on episode 287, where... Um, Captain Nick was measuring his feet in barleycorns, which are quite sizable feet. Well done, Nick. Um, I, I don't think you guys understood what he was trying to get to. In fact, it's, it sounded like you, you guys were taking it, you know, as a rude thing. But in New Zealand, or well, certainly, you know, we say, um, you know, big feet, big socks. <laughs> uh, and I did say socks. Um, Talons Douglas. I'll catch you guys later. Flying Kiwis out. <laughs> Always great to hear from Lucas, the flying Kiwi. And, uh, yeah, we did, we did receive our, uh, packages and, uh, yeah, yeah awesome. In various awesome. states of rip. Yes. Well, <laughs> the important one, the F4 Phantom was pristine. So thank you very much. So Dr. Steph, uh, doctors, uh, seem to think they know everything about everything, mm, right? Don't we though? So Lucas, <laughs> soothing noises it's going to be okay you're going to you're going to be just fine so um you know first of all starting out so yeah the caa and the faa when it comes to medical concerns and potential problems can be um let's say annoying at the least and expensive at the worst and potentially at the worst um you know do you have that ability to um say whether or not you have a valid medical but i think in your case you're going to be just fine here with uh, your recent issues with the turbinate reduction and septoplasty and you did not say rhinoplasty which is a conventional nose job so uh, we'll just assume that you did not have a nose job there but um no i'm just just kidding there um but yeah you know um sleep apnea common problem common medical problem well, lots of people have it lots of pilots have it um so you're correct. It's not my area of, uh, it's not my, one of my specialties, but um, there's plenty of information out there from both the CAA and the FAA. Um, and actually they give nice flow charts for um, if a medical examiner suspects um, a pilot to have sleep apnea, if they've 
um, not been diagnosed with it, the type of assessment that's needed, um, or if, if in your case, like in your case, where they've had recent surgery that may suggest that uh, this could be a problem, what needs to happen in order to make sure that the uh, that they're able to issue your medical certificate. But in general, if um, a pilot has sleep apnea and it's diagnosed and treated and deemed to be under control, much like your uh, bout with childhood asthma, um, then a medical certificate can be issued just with special issuance. Um, it's not a huge deal. Um, here in the U.S., I'm not sure how it works in other places. Um, usually to be diagnosed, you have to go for a sleep study and they'll record all kinds of parameters and they'll monitor your breathing while you're asleep and measure how many times you, uh, you know, how often you're, the level of snoring, how often you stop actually breathing while you're sleeping at night, how often it wakes you up or interrupts your sleep cycle. cycle. So there's a lot of parameters and health data that's recorded with that. And then um, the most common treatment is usually not a surgical intervention, but usually just a mask that you wear at night um, called a um, CPAP device. A, let me see if I can get the correct uh, continuous positive airway pressure is what CPAP stands for. Acronyms are always kind of dangerous. Um, but basically, it's a it's a mask that you wear. It goes over your nose in most cases and provides just um, a positive air pressure to help keep your airway open while you're sleeping. And that's very effective in treating sleep apnea. In certain cases, <clears throat> patients may need, like you had a reduction in turbinate size or a um, oral pharyngeal surgical intervention to open up those airway passages a little bit more. But in general, if it's diagnosed, if it's treated, you're going to be just fine. Um, as far as I can tell from the CAA, they do re, um, issue unrestricted um, medical certificates as long as it's treated. So, however, as usual, I was always back this up with saying, you know, follow the guidance of your local medical examiner. Um, it's always best to be forthcoming with information and make sure they have all of those medical details. And I think as long as you do all those things, you'll be just fine. Do you know what the difference is between God and a doctor? What's that? God doesn't think he's a doctor. <laughs> Dude, bam. Just kidding. Where's the rim? Where's the rim shot? Yeah. Actually, that's a pilot joke, but uh, I changed it. To it, it applies. <laughs> I think it applies both ways. So. Awesome. Wait, I've got it. I've got both of them. So, but yeah, I mean, um, like I said, soothing noises, I think you're going to be just fine with this one. And, um, you know, you may need to complete the testing they ask for, but hopefully that's not too inconvenient and or expensive um, for where you are. You're going to be okay, Lucas. Soothing, soothing comments from all of us. Absolutely. Yeah. And, well, you uh, know, I'm, meditation, I was going to say, Dana, what were you going to say? I was going to say, you know, the F the FAA here in the states they they want to uh, go ahead and based on the circumference of my neck, you know, pin me as being a sleep apnea person in circumference of in what, all honesty what did you say? of my neck. Oh, neck. Okay, sorry, my neck. They they want to say that because I've got a big neck and big chest that I absolutely have to have sleep apnea, and. You know, you you look down the 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 reference of all the symptoms, and I have none of them. I've talked to my wife, and I've asked her, "Do I ever stop breathing at night?" 
I have none of them. I've I've worn sleep monitors and I have none of them. And the government wants to sit here and tell me you have sleep apnea. And I look at them and say, well, if you look for it, of course, you probably find it. But I don't have daytime tiredness. I don't have daytime, you know, I, I don't drink caffeine. I mean, let's be forthcoming. I don't drink caffeine unless it's an absolute emergency. I don't touch the stuff. I don't drink coffee it's a caffeine daily. emergency. <laughs> yeah, I don't drink caffeine. I don't drink any type of tea. I don't drink any type of sodas. I don't drink any type of uh, any type of energy drinks. I don't do any of that. And I have I'm a very high energy person. So if I had sleep apnea, I would not be able to to function on a regular basis uh, at this high level. And, and, and be able to look at the government and say, hey, listen, I don't have sleep apnea, which I know I don't. I mean, it, it, it's been proven. Um, I haven't done any sleep studies, but I don't want to look for things. I mean, if you look for, you know, as a doctor, Dr. Steph, I, can, I think you can, can relate that if you have uh, anything that you're looking for, if you look for it, generally you're going to find something. Um, sure. And and, you, you can look for a lot of things that may not be worth looking for. But, exactly. Um, I mean, you, you know, you take an x-ray of body, uh, it's a person's body, and you're going to find, you know, as they get older, you're going to find some stenosis. Does it cause them symptoms? May or may not, right? Sure. So, uh, you know, I, I, I can function at a very high level without any caffeine, without having any daytime, daytime drowsiness. So do I have sleep apnea? Well, you never know, but I can tell you right now, the biggest part, the hardest part of my job is not doing my job. It's sleeping in every different bed, every different night with a different pillow in a different location and different noises. That is the problem, not my sleep apnea. And I don't really have any sleep apnea. And I just so. wanted to, to bring up two other points real quick. I just want to make sure that we're talking, uh, make it clear that we're talking about obstructive sleep apnea, which is, um, the most common type of sleep apnea where you have, uh, you know, the muscles in your throat relax and it, it forms a physical blockage of those air passages. There is another type of sleep apnea called central sleep apnea. And that's a type of sleep apnea that's more controlled by the central nervous system and your brain sending, not sending the prop, proper signals to your muscles that control breathing. Um, I don't have the guidelines for that in front of me. So I don't know if, uh, if anyone out there is wondering about that. Um, and then the other thing, just what, um, Lucas was asking about, does he know of any other things he should do to help mitigate his risk factors there? I, I think you're doing all the right things, Lucas, you know, eating healthy, staying in shape, uh, you know, regular medical checkups, you're, you're doing all the right things. So. so I'm imagining the discussion that Dana's having with Julie, his wonderful, beautiful wife about sleep apnea and I think she was probably thinking as she was answering, well, the only time you stop breathing is when I put the pillow over your face. <laughs> well, we, we could say a few more things than that, but yes, <laughs> pillow would be appropriate. <laughs> okay. Well, with that, I think that now is a good time for us to play this week's installment of the beautiful Plain Tales. The Old Pilot's Plain Tales, The Ian Black Interviews, Part 1. In this, the first part of the Ian Black Interviews, 
You'll meet Ian and hear a little bit about his aviation career and about his love for aviation photography. It's a rare chance to meet this fine photographer and author, and I trust you'll enjoy the chat we had. Ian, first of all, I'd like to thank you very much indeed for um, allowing me to interview you today. Um, you're a fascinating bloke. Uh, we've known each other for quite a few years. And uh, you're someone who has managed to successfully combine two of my greatest loves. Uh, it's flying and photography. So how did you first become interested in those two subjects? Well, my, uh, my father was a fighter pilot, a well-known uh, jet pilot. He uh, left um, the Air Force uh, around about three or four years before I did, but, but had a much longer career. He started off uh, flying meteors for national service. Then he flew seahawks and vampires. He was one of the RAS first lightning pilots and uh, then became a Harrier pilot. And then a senior officer flew for the Battle of Britain flight. In fact, he was the commander of the Battle of Britain flight. And I, as a child, obviously lived on Air Force bases and was surrounded by uh, normally lightnings and uh, Spitfires and Harriers, etc. So, you know, on my days uh, at home uh, from boarding school, I'd walk down to uh, take him his lunch or whatever, or I'd just stand in awe watching him uh, flying his aircraft around. Uh, he was always a very keen uh, PR type of person, so never missed an opportunity to to promote the Air Force. And that obviously involved formation aerobatics and formation flying. Uh, he, he was great friends with Ray Hanna, so did uh, mixed formations with the Red Arrows. He did mixed formations with uh, the Battle of Britain Flight and Lightnings. And that involved taking photographs. So um, a chap called Arthur Gibson was one of our sort of uh, family friends, and he would often be around the house. And so I'd, I'd sort of look in awe at his work. And, and the combination of... Um, uh, the thrill of flying and wonderful photography sort of captured me really and then I bought books by Charles Brown uh, and looked at his work and was impressed by the way he um, took uh, the clouds in the background and then put the aircraft into the cloud in the background and, and sort of dropped it in like a painting so that that was my uh, trying to combine the two hobbies like you really that that I love flying and I love photography uh, and, and trying to get the two to work together. What was your first camera? My first camera, it was either a Zenith or it was either a Practica, so something from the Eastern Bloc. Uh, I was obviously sponsoring um, the, the Warsaw Pact at that time. <laughs> uh, and I do what I do remember is that the Zenith might have been my father's camera and we bought them from the, um, what was the, either the officer's shop at Rheindalen or the BX at uh, Ramstein. And I remember uh, the Zenith was a 35mm camera that um, could uh, sort of replicate Nikon, Olympus, and Pentax, etc., but it weighed about two and a half kilos, so it was enormously heavy. It had a very, very basic light metering system, uh, and the lenses weren't brilliant. You had to be pretty sharp to take a good photograph with that, and it was just one of my regrets, I guess. I, I didn't buy a Nikon from day one. I, I worked my way up from the, the ranks, as it were. Fair enough. Now, you've had a pretty distinguished flying career. Perhaps you could give us a quick rundown of uh, how that came about. Well, I, um, I left the, the army, as it were, um, after about six months. I decided that um, I didn't want to join the Air Force and follow my father's footsteps. I wanted to do something different. Uh, at the time, it was during the Northern Ireland crisis, and 
my father said to me, probably to get me out of the house, what you should do is you should go and join the army and get yourself to Northern Ireland and see some of the real action. Well, perhaps that was a good idea from my father's point of view, but after about six months, I realised that there wasn't going to be any flying in Northern Ireland, and I'd also be running around uh, with a beret on and a gun, and that wasn't what I wanted to do. So I applied to join the Air Force, and um, I wouldn't say I was desperate, but uh, it wouldn't be far off it, because... At the interview, I was offered a navigator post, which I didn't really want to do. I wanted to become a pilot, and uh, I jumped at the chance and said, when can I join? So I, I always had the vision that even if I started as a navigator, then perhaps one day I could become a pilot, and you know, at least I was out of the army, and I'd be wearing blue rather than brown. So yeah, it, it was um, a hasty move to join the army, and an even hastier move to get into the Air Force. But um, I was offered navigator, and I took it. And I sort of went through navigator school, un, not not uh, fully aware of how complicated it was to be a navigator in terms of mathematics and astrophysics and things. And I, I'm not a gifted um, person in terms of academics. And so it was pretty tough. And then eventually I got posted to the Phantom, which I love flying. Uh, for the first year, I thought it was great fun. The second year, I thought it was incredibly dangerous. And the third year, I thought, right, I need to become a pilot. So <laughs> <laughs> that was uh, an inspiration to um, to get out of the back seat and go to the front seat. And I was very lucky because um, one of my uh, station commanders was a chap called Sir John Allison. He was um, a well-known warbird pilot, a lightning pilot, and a phantom pilot. And generally on phantom squadrons, if the station commander wanted to fly the next day, all the navigators all scurried away under a stone and then said, no, no, I'm busy, I can't do it. And I thought, well, you know, I was only 20, 21. I've got nothing to lose. And he was a nice chap, and so I often volunteered to fly with him. And on one particular day, I was uh, sitting around the ops room and somebody said, does someone want to fly with the station commander tomorrow morning? And I said, yes, you know, I'm happy to do that. And off we went in this uh, Phantom, bumbling around in about 4 or 5k visibility, and we went up to an area called Low Flying Area 2 near Osnabrück in Germany. And I, I don't know why a sixth sense or something. I looked out over my left side and I just saw a uh, phantom literally half a mile away doing about 500 knots. And he was pointing exactly towards us. So he was on a collision course. And I just shouted to uh, the guy in the front, irrespective of rank, push. And I said it a bit louder than that. And he did. We were at 250 feet and he pushed quite hard. And we must have gone down to about, I don't know, 100 feet or so. And this phantom went over my back canopy and over his front canopy, probably, I don't know, five or ten feet. I could hear the, the two jet engines just roaring away. I could count all the rivets on the stabilator, and we must have missed him by literally inches. And after that, we had a, we had a great rapport, and he said, well, you know, if ever I can repay the favour for saving my life, I will. And uh, I said, well, as it is, sir, I, I want to become a pilot. And so he, he backed me to the hill for that and so that was a pretty lucky lucky chance meeting i guess absolutely now uh, once you started your flying training and became a pilot um what did you fly operationally from the front seat well i i started off and i had to go through the whole um pilot training scheme um which was everyone said to me oh you'll you'll find it a walk in the park it'll be easy and i didn't find it easy i found the navigating very easy but i found the sort of the coordination between a map and a hand is very difficult so it's not, not the same as sitting in the back of the map and just looking out the window. Um, eventually, I went through all the training scheme and got posted to Lightnings, which was um, one of the last courses to go to the Lightning. And from there? Uh, after the Lightning, 
Uh, I went to the Tornado F3, uh, which is a short step down from Binbrook to Coningsby in Lincolnshire and uh, joined pretty much the Leeming Wing. So I went there in 1988-89, just as the whole base was was forming as a a Tornado Wing and um, started off on 23 Squadron. And then they were looking for experience on 25, which was newly formed, so I moved across to 25 and then ended up on 11 Squadron to the end, which I'd been on as a Lightning Squadron. Uh, and then we went to the Gulf, and then we came back. And so in the end, I did about five years on the Tornado. Yeah, you're, you're kind of missing a rather special airplane out of this uh, little list of fighters you flew. Um, well, there was the Lightning, of course, <laughs> which um, was uh, my father's aircraft. And so that was my goal, to get from the front or the back seat to the front seat of the Lightning, and probably by the most circuitous route that anybody's ever done. It took me probably about five or six years. But... I, I had got uh, 750 hours or so on the Phantom, and so I could operate a radar with my eyes closed, as it were. So that wasn't a problem. Flying the Lightning was not an easy aircraft to fly, so I, I had a bit of an advantage, and uh, that that stood me in good stead, certainly, to fly the Lightning. Didn't you end up doing an exchange tour? I did. After uh, I'd flown the Tornado Air 3 for three years or four years, I applied for an exchange tour. And at the time, the options were... Flying the F-16 in Norway or in Denmark or in Holland or flying the F-4F Phantom in Germany or going to America to fly the F-15. The one exchange tour which sort of stuck out to me was flying the Mirage 2000 in France because it it wasn't really part of NATO. It was living in the south of France and um, it was flying a single seat jet, which was very similar to the Lightning. Excellent. I bet that was a fantastic tour. It was. It was... um, the French are, are great aviators. They're, uh, they've got a great air force. They've got a great philosophy about um, operating aircraft. Uh, they operate pretty much on a war footing all the time. So you fly with live ammunition or live weapons most of the time. There's no peacetime constraints as they were. And pretty much if you uh, went to work on a Monday and they said, we need to deploy 10 aircraft to the middle of Africa on Wednesday, they would literally just put some bombs on and off you'd go. There'd be no we can't do it or we've got to reprogram the radar warning receiver or we've got to put the new chaff dispenser on or we haven't got this. They were all combat ready all the time, which was, was, a, was a real eye-opener to me. Excellent. Now, you must have uh, have a few memorable antics from your days flying fighters. Do any spring to mind? Um, probably not that I'd like to put onto air that uh, would, would incriminate me. <laughs> but um, It's all water under the bridge now. No one will come after you, I'm sure. <laughs> What a, lots of things really doing air combat, um, chasing bears, uh, which I know you yourself have done. Uh, having been in the air force probably fifteen years at, um, at that time, the sort of finally getting miles and miles out over the North Sea and finally seeing a Russian aircraft. And you're going back to 1988, 89, 90 or so. I'd waited so long to see one that. Um, I remember the GCI said, no, no, you've got, to, you've got to turn back now. You're too far away. And I, I had to say, I'm sorry, I can't hear you. I, I'll, I'll call you back in five minutes. And we just pressed and we pressed and we pressed. And eventually we rolled out behind this uh, of bear. And I remember thinking, that's it. I've finally done it. I finally got behind a Russian aircraft. And now, you know, my, my, my job is done. I can go home now. Excellent. Now, did you always fly with a camera? Um, I did. Um from about a year and a half into my first tour, I, I must have flown pretty much every every flight with a camera because 
initially I was obviously learning how to do the, the job in the back seat and I didn't have the capacity probably or the ability to to fly and take a, a camera with me and then I guess looking at my photographs now I, I must have had a camera pretty much in every flight even in fact um, flying over Bosnia and Saudi Arabia and Iraq then I still had my camera with me and thinking well if I get shot down then it's it's going to be sitting in the bottom of this aircraft I guess how did you get your first photographic book published? Well, uh, jumping back, actually, that uh, when you asked me about my uh, did I always carry a camera with me, reminded me that um, I did always carry a camera pretty much with me with the lightning. And I watched a guy eject when he caught fire. And uh, one of the things I always thought was, I, you know, what if I'd seen that and not had my camera? And that was always my thought. Well, you know, I might see something that nobody else ever sees. And this guy, we came off the tank and we were doing combat against phantoms and he announced he had a fire. And I went alongside him and the whole of his, the bottom of his aircraft was burnt away and it was smouldering and it was still bits of control runs hanging out and things. And eventually he ejected and I had one frame left on my camera. So I, I moved into sort of close formation on him or out of close formation and waited for that one shot and got a shot of him just as he ejected and the canopy came off and his, his chute fired. So that was a reason why I always did carry a camera. And my going back to your original question, my first picture was a very grainy black and white shot that um, I took of a an aircraft uh, as a gate guard at my father's um, headquarters at Bentley Priory, and I sent it to a magazine. They published it, and I think I don't think I even asked them for any money. I was just I was so pleased to get it published. I think, well, you know, they don't surely not going to pay me as well. Whose idea was it to publish your first book, and um, how does it compare with your latest creations? Well, I, uh, I met a chap called Dennis Baldry, who worked for Osprey Publishing in Longacre in London, and they were starting a, uh, a series of colour series books called um, just the Osprey Colour Series books, I guess, and, and they were fast jets and jet combat, and a guy from Bimbrook had done one. And so I had amassed a reasonable collection of photographs and then I got a commission to do the book. And I think at the time it was maybe £2,000 to do the book, the commission, which was you know, a reasonable amount of money. It was enough to buy yourself a decent camera and enough film <clears throat> to produce a book. So it wasn't an insignificant amount of money. And then from that, um, I published maybe seven or eight more books whilst I was in the Air Force, uh, always with the... Um, the hope that one day I could publish my own book because publishers tend to treat it a bit like yesterday's fish and chips. You know, you've, you've got a book coming out, they produce it, and then the next day they've got somebody else's book coming out. So they then want to move on to that. And so I wanted to do a book which had, uh, in terms of uh, photography, moving up a gear, I guess, into making sure that all the photographs didn't go down the middle of the book, all the photographs were nice and clear and across the center spread, no out of focus pictures, no marks on them and no mistakes. So I decided to publish my own books and it was actually a pretty, pretty simple process of finding a printer, finding a designer and then doing a lot of the preparation work myself. We're going to leave it there for this week, but tune in next week to listen to The Plain Tale, which will cover the concluding part of the interview, where Ian uh, talks about uh, his post-Air Force flying and more about his aviation photography. If you're interested in taking a look at his website and his publications, you'll find him at firestreakbooks.com. F-I-R-E-S-T-R-E-A-K-B-O-O-K-S.com And uh, you'll be amazed at uh, the quality of his photography 
and his fabulous aviation career. Fascinating. Anyway, I was just saying, now I've unmuted myself, he uh, is a great guy, Ian, and uh, he's got a real talent. And uh, Glenn Taylor was saying he's actually got uh, some of Ian's books on his bookshelf, which is brilliant. Wow. I'll have to um, see if I can find out um, where I can find some of his books and take a look at his pictures, because I don't think I'm familiar with any of them. So. Well, uh, you can find that on his uh, website, because he now publishes himself. So. Yeah, absolutely. But uh, no, he's uh, he's been writing books and taking photographs for years. And uh, uh, of course, as he's, um, he's become more, more renowned, he's been asked to do big and bigger jobs. And uh, so now he spends a lot of his time, uh, you know, going around. And in addition, uh, he used to uh, fly for an outfit uh, in South Africa where he flew the lightning, uh, a privately owned lightning down there. And uh, he actually has some great pictures from down there, which is also very good. I look forward to the part two of your interview with Ian Black. Yeah, it was all a bit of a rush getting part one out. So uh, part two should be a doddle now, but a whole week. (laughs) I hope it's better because that was just awful. (laughs) Good. Just kidding. <laughs> okay. Well, let's move on with uh, uh, Steve uh, wrote in. He says, looks like Ryanair, Ryanair is leading the way in customer service again. And this is from a satirical, a satirical, satirical, there we go, um, website, News Thump. And uh, the article proceeds to say Ryanair to charge 10 pounds for apologizing budget airline Ryanair is to post to impose a 10 pound supplementary charge for apologizing to customers when they cock up. We can report this morning, the airline which advertises low prices, but then shoves its hand deeper into your wallet than Gordon Brown ever managed managed announced the new fee to cover administrative expenses. Ryanair explained that staff at information desks will need extensive training to insincerely mutter the word sorry from between gritted teeth when your plane has been delayed for several hours, but that customers would have to cover the cost. <laughs> Airline bosses insisted that the pricing would help keep costs low for customers who are content to be treated like the mindless disposable sacks of photoplasm they are. 10 pounds will ena- entitle the customer to a terse and mendacious apology. Apology, excuse me. However, customers can upgrade to a premium remorse package, which will entitle them to be uh, to more convincing expressions of regret. For a one-time payment of fifty pounds, a representative will try to squeeze out a tear whilst informing you that there's no way you'll be getting to your destination in the foreseeable future. A spokesman told us. Anyway, so it's very clever. Uh, very cute, uh, very much uh, akin to what you'd read on The Onion. And uh, we'll put a link to the entire thing in the show notes. Of course, that was satire, not true, as far as we know. Um, Stend writes, Hi, guys. Stephanie has been demoted to an honorary guy in one of the earlier episodes, if I recall. Yeah, we're all guys. Uh, yeah, I'll take that as a compliment, actually, yeah. I think. Well, planning... Well, dreaming of, dreaming of really, 
a trip around the world, I noticed that the service I was using proposed that a leg from Beijing to LAX should be booked on an Acme flight operating a Boeing 717-200. No need for those big lumbering 777-747s or Airbus 340s. Let's just downsize. Thanks for a great show. Best regards in cold IPAs. Svend Rather, He says, please don't even make the attempt. Just call me Danish Svend. Well, too late. I made the attempt. What do you think? Rather? I think Rather? Rather? I'm not going to make the attempt. I'm You're not going to make the, the attempt. Ah, come on. Sorry. <laughs> okay. I'm just respecting his wishes, really. Okay. Okay. Svend. Danish Svend. And hey, who who doesn't love the Danes? I have a little bit of that blood in me. Uh, yeah, I think a lot of us do because they were all doing all that pillaging and stuff. That's damn right we did. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay. A third uh, Scandinavian. I think. That's great. You're a third of Scandinavian? Yeah. Okay. And remember, this is not Captain Jeff speaking. This is the microphone. <laughs> yeah. People on the podcast may not. <laughs> yeah, the audio podcast are going, what? What is he talking <laughs> about? Well, uh, on the video here, the <laughs> The uh, graphic that we use when uh, the plane tails is playing uh, is stuck in the uh, position. So, anyway, we got a uh, nice picture of a mi microphone. Yeah, yes, it's good. a very beautiful microphone with uh, the Acme logo on it. Very nice custom job. Um, Bradley sent in this, and I have some audio to play from a news outlet. The U.S. Army tells us it was at 7.30 last night that one of their Black Hawk helicopters collided with a drone over New York City airspace. They said it's the first of this kind of incident that they are aware of and that an investigation is underway. The pictures here document the aftermath of what the Army says is the first collision they know of between one of their aircraft and a drone. It happened over Midland Beach on Staten Island Thursday. The chopper made it back to Linden Airport in New Jersey. The crew of four on board unharmed. Thankfully, it didn't appear to uh, impede the, the helicopter's uh, um, flight and it landed safely, and you know we're grateful for that. Stephen Cohen is a drone expert. He teaches this subject to students at the Bergen County Technical School. He's amongst those trying to figure out what happened. The Army says the Black Hawk out of Fort Bragg, North Carolina, was in New York City this week as part of the United Nations General Assembly's security operations and was flying at about 500 feet when it collided with the drone. We don't know how far the operator was from the from the aircraft, from the manned aircraft. We don't know how far the operator was and how tunnel visioned he might have been. Now here's the twist to all of this. Our expert tells us for all of this week, there's a flight restriction covering all of New York City because of the UN's General Assembly meetings. And that covers drones. So in this case, he says, either the drone operator did not check for restrictions or decided to ignore it. You just don't want that to happen. It, it's, it, it's very frustrating and, and, um, and reckless and, and ignorant. The Army says it believes it was just an accident and was just happy that the crew was unharmed. The operator of the drone has yet to step forward. As for the damage to the Black Hawk helicopter, the Army tells us it is undergoing repairs and they expect it to be back in service within the next 24 hours. Along the Hudson River tonight, Arthur Chian, Fox 5 News. Thank you. So, we actually have a collision with a drone. Uh, in this case, a, a military helicopter. I want to know where they found these um, imposter, this imposter drone expert, though, because I think we all know who the real drone experts are. Who? Right. Over at the UAV Digest and 
Oh, yeah, that's right. They are the experts. Um, Obviously, I didn't hear a familiar voice. So, yeah, you're right. Imposter. Yeah. Steph, good point. Okay. Hey, uh, one of our APG community members, um, love this guy, Stephen Ivy, uh, sent us in some audio regarding uh, he's trying to find a new job and eventually he wants to become an airline pilot. And uh, so he's doing his best to find a way to log those hours. And so uh, he sent in some audio feedback regarding a recent job interview. So are you ready for this? I am. Hey, everybody. Stephen Ivey, the Mooney driver from West Georgia. Um, Got some feedback to leave. Um, And before I get to that feedback, I actually already had this recorded and I somehow managed to delete the entire 16-minute recording of everything that I had recorded. So we're going to start over again. So I'm going to leave some feedback on my first interview as a commercial pilot. Um, The interview was with, let's just call them Acme Survey. Um, They do a lot of survey and aerial mapping jobs across the United States and everything. So I went, flew down in the Mooney Thursday night to uh, get there for the interview um, Friday and um, got down there. Everything's fine. And uh, the Friday morning they said they'd pick me up at a certain time and um, kind of ran late, picked me up late and everything. So not a big deal. That happens. Anyway, get to where we're going to be doing the interviews and everything, and um, had to wait a little while. There were apparently a couple other guys that were going to be interviewing during the course of the day with me and all that good stuff, so there was a ground portion and a flight portion of it, and I got to pick to do the ground portion first, so that consisted of a... Uh, what I thought was just going to be a test, but turned out later on uh, there's some more to it, so... Um, Went and took the test, 170 questions, and I had one hour to do it. Um, didn't do very well, um, but, you know, there was some stuff in there that I just wasn't overly familiar familiar with and don't really use a whole lot in my day-to-day flying, so it's stuff I kind of had to look up to really know the right answer and everything, but... Um, you know, so anyway, got done with that, and then we went over the test, and they uh, went through a lot of the questions that I'd got wrong. We did that for about 30 minutes, and um, after that, they wanted me to do some, uh, what do you call that, um, do some flight planning for some trips, you know, just at random airports to another airport and everything. So, did the first one, and... Um, was, you know, explaining my reasoning behind choosing the route I did, why I picked this, that, and the other, and, uh, one of the guys that was interviewing me, uh, during that time, he asked, well, you know, if you didn't have your attitude indicator, would you still fly VFR to the other airport to go pick up the part that would be there for you when you got there, and I was kind of and I would like, well, I would prefer not to, but I could if it was daytime and VFR conditions. 
and everything. So we're on to the next one. Next flight was from Denver to Salt Lake City. And uh, I had to really kind of think about that one um, because, you know, I'm going to be, the aircraft I'd be flying would be 172. Uh, obviously not enough power to get over the Rocky Mountains and doesn't have oxygen on board. So that factors into which way you can go there, which your choices basically consist of going up to Wyoming and going around the lower part of the Rockies right there. Or you can go all the way down to New Mexico and then come back up. Either way, you've got a good bit to go through. So I explained my reasoning on that one and everything. And then the guy pointed out again, I was like, well, couldn't you follow this interstate through, you know, the mountains this way? And I got to look at it and I was like, well, you could, but it's going to be a rough ride. And there's not really a whole lot of places to sit down. But he said, and he followed that up with, but you could. And I was like, sure, if somebody really wanted to, I guess they could. And then he made a comment about <clears throat> how a lot of the people that are out flying usually just follow the interstate through the mountains out there so that way they have somewhere to land. And uh, at that point, uh, I kind of had a flag raise that was actually the second one that I got raised that morning. Uh, the first one came when I got there and realized I was the oldest person in the whole building, which isn't really saying a whole lot considering I'm only 27. But well, well I'll, I'll get to that later. Anyway, so I had a third route they wanted me to plan. Uh, this one was from, I believe, somewhere in around Fresno, California, over to Bishop. I think that's in Nevada. Yeah. So other side of the Sierra Nevada Mountains. So kind of the same situation with the Rockies. You either had to go one way or another to get around the mountains and, you know, get around them. So I queued in again that they were wanting to cut through the mountains through little valleys and everything and so pointed one of the valleys out again I said okay yeah that'll work so got done with that and um, ended up waiting around for about 30 minutes for the other guys to get back from flying um, they got back and then they took me out to the plane uh, it was a 172 SP so carbureted version and um, ended up waiting another 30 minutes for the instructor, and he finally got out there. And uh, I, I think during the whole course of the flight, we, he might have said less than 20 words to me. It, it was not a whole lot. I mean, he basically said what we were going to do. We went out there, and we did it. Um, didn't tell me anything about the airplane, if I should know anything. You know, hey, it does this, it does that, how to use this, um, you know, and no one really said whether or not I could ask questions or not or anything. So anyway, so we go up, do the air work, and then we come back to shoot an ILS into the airport that we were flying out of in Daytona, and then came back around to do a localizer. Uh, ILS went fine, you know, got back up, did the localizer, and, um, it started getting busy. Um, a lot of the flight schools down there were out flying, so it was really hard to hear the controller. And then also, everyone's a Cessna, so you had to really, really, really pay attention to your call, what call sign they were saying so you knew what your next instructions were. So, had that going on, and then 
I was trying to figure out on the GPS um, how to get the DME put in or the district measuring equipment pulled up so I could figure out how far out I was to the runway. So I was fumbling around with it and the guy was like, well, you know, do you need help with that? I was like, yeah, I've never used the uh, Bendix King GPS before. He's like, okay, well, you should have said something. I'm like, well, no one really said I could ask questions. No one said that you were here to help. It was kind of getting the plane and go. But I, I didn't say that. I kept flying the plane. So did that, shot that approach, and then we did a go around again and did a power off 180 to the runway that we finished at the flight portion. So then sat around for about another hour for the other guys to finish up their ground portion of it. And you know, this goes back to when I first got there too. Just the whole operation of this place is like really unprofessional. Um, a lot of cutting up, a lot of joking around. Um, I really had the fit, like, I didn't go to an actual college when I was in school. You know, I did everything online. But this is this is this place I would picture being a fraternity house that that's the best I can relate to it I felt like I was at a frat house and how they were operating stuff anyway so one of the other guys got done and, you know I got to talking to him and um, he was a CFII and multi-engine instructor out of California and you know I got to talking with him and he kind of had the same red flags come up about the place that I did and everything. So that was um, that was kind of good to know that I wasn't the only one that felt that way. Anyway, so finally the other guy got done. They were going to take us to lunch and everything. Um, and I, I told him, like, hey, I, I need to go ahead and go so I can um, get out in front of the thunderstorm buildup that, you know, happens every afternoon in Florida and Georgia and the, during the summer. So uh, I left, flew back, and then you know went to the uh, meetup uh, Friday night um, with everybody. So my first interview experience, you know, I don't think it was well. It was bad, but it wasn't in a bad way. It was in a good way because now I know this isn't somewhere I want to go work for, and this may not be what I want to do, and I, you know, just a lot of things, I'm mean, just learning what to look for, you know, and stuff like that, what to expect, which that was really one thing I really wanted to get from this, regardless was, you know, what to expect in an aviation interview, since I really haven't done one since I was a flight attendant, and of course, a flight attendant interview is a whole lot different than a pilot interview, but, um, and you know, um, I also was chatting with some folks in another pilot uh, group that I'm a part of online, and uh, one guy made a really great point about when you're going to look for these jobs and everything. If you feel like that they're going to have you doing something unsafe, or you might be get put in a bad situation that's going to get you hurt, get somebody else hurt, or you cause you to have some kind of blemish on your record, you probably don't need to go there, because if you've got some kind of blemish on your record, it's gonna follow you around for your whole career, and it may keep you from getting on with a really good company down the road, 
So I kind I kind of took that advice to heart, I think, from this whole process. But uh, anyway, um, so yeah, that was my experience this past couple days with my first commercial pilot job interview. So, well, um, while well, I'm leaving some feedback, um, other things going on with me. I've been uh, working a lot on the weekends recently. That's no fun. Um, but it's, it's work, so got to do what you have to do. Um, trying to finish out my multi-engine uh, training. I'm about halfway through. I've been doing a, doing the training in a Piper Apache, the 160 horsepower version. Um, it's a 1958 model, and I'm pretty sure it's the original interior and the original um, instrument cluster. So, yeah, I'm flying an antique electronic shop, basically. Anyway, so hoping to get that done in the near future and um, maybe do a little bit more flying in my plane, too. I haven't really got to fly it too much recently, but um, anyway, I hope this uh, feedback helps out other people that are out there looking to do something else other than flight instructing. Um, hopefully it gives you a little bit of insight on um, what they expect in a negative way if you go to a job interview. Hopefully uh, if you go to an interview, it doesn't turn out to be this way, and it's really positive for you, and you get the job you want. Well, but uh, if anyone that's uh, looking to go do aerial survey with any kind of company um, that may or may not be in the Daytona Beach area, uh, feel free to get in touch with me. Um, you can uh, get in touch with me on Slack, or you can... Uh, get in touch with me on Twitter, Stephen Ivy 1990 uh, that's Stephen from PH, and Ivy's I-V-E-Y. Anyway, hope everybody's doing all right, and uh, we will talk to you later. Thank you, Stephen. It's always interesting to hear about uh, these operators out there, and uh, to hear your actual real experience with the interview, and the questions they ask, and that sort of thing. Uh, just to let you know, I, I think Stephen was uh, offered a couple of different positions with uh, survey flying companies, and I think he accepted one this morning. I'm not sure if he's heard back. Do you know if he's in the uh, chat? I know he was in the chat room earlier, so I don't know if he's here. Yeah, I haven't seen now. him in there for a while, and I, I wasn't great on checking uh, yeah. messages earlier today. But I know that um, there were better offers out there, Yeah, um, better better companies. But I'm, I'm glad that he sent this feedback in because – I know a lot of our listeners are folks who are trying to get into commercial aviation in one way or another. And for a lot of people, there's kind of a lot of unknown out there in terms of what you might find or encounter. And my advice is always interview lots of places. You know, don't just pick one or two and take the first offer that comes your way unless you're 100% certain that that's exactly who you want to work for. You know them well, you know what you want to do. You don't get a good sense of what what is out there and what might be good about one company or bad about another company until you actually see it firsthand and get to experience it. So that was great feedback. Yeah, I think you really do need to trust your gut feeling about certain operations. And uh, they're not always right, and, but I think they're pretty, I'd say probably 90% of the time they're good. Yeah, and things may look good on paper, um, but sometimes there's that other 
uh, intangible aspect that you can't get unless you go and meet with people who actually work in a, for a company or work at a certain place and, and get to know what their culture is like. So, um, yeah, great feedback. Yeah. And we look forward to hearing where Stephen ends up, uh, surveying a company and that kind of thing. And, uh, of course he, as I said, uh, he's, his goal is to become an airline pilot. And I'm absolutely positive that it will happen and, uh, hopefully sooner rather than later. Yeah. This is just a, a step on the ladder, isn't it? Yes, exactly. And it will really make you appreciate <laughs> the airline job when you land it. Oh, for sure. Uh, Malek uh, says, curious question. Do you feel G-forces, upward and downward feelings, emotions of the aircraft on takeoff, descent, and landing, and get that weird feeling in your head on takeoff? As a passenger, these sensations come and go, but as a pilot, do you get them? And do they eventually go away? Thanks. Hope to be an airline pilot someday. Malik, what do you say? Nick? I get weird feelings everywhere. But, uh, <laughs> not... We're not going to talk about those weird feelings. Just, just yeah. the ones in your head, Nick. Just the ones in your head. Oh, okay. Um, well, no, not really, because uh, G-forces uh, are so insignificant in an airliner as to be ignored. Um, you obviously feel the motion. But that's not really down to G-force. It's just down to the aircraft uh, jolting around as it gets airborne, perhaps, and hits a few lumps and bumps or or uh, runway lights. Um, you know, you obviously get a feeling of uh, elevation. You can feel your ears popping. Your your sensory organs will react when the aircraft maneuvers. But that's not really down to uh, G-force. G-force is something that really you need to be able to uh, produce a, a, a very uh, steep turn and sustain. And then you start to feel the increase in weight that G gives you. Um, so, uh, no, I think we, we all feel the motions of the aircraft. Uh, I don't think those of us who are experienced pilots uh, think they're weird. Uh, for us, they're completely normal. Uh, of course, for people who uh, perhaps haven't flown before or not very often, it will feel strange. But in my mind, it's probably no stranger than the feelings you get if you're on a fairground ride or something similar. Yeah. Um, I'm convinced that many of the co-pilots I fly with uh, have no feelings whatsoever when it comes to G-forces. I have lots of feelings. What are you talking about? <laughs> uh, not you, Dana. <laughs> You're, you're a smooth flyer. You actually take pride in the craft of flying the airplane smoothly. I cannot say that for many of the first officers I fly with. Really? Yes. Huh. And captains when I'm riding in the back. I'm thinking, really? This doesn't feel like a roller coaster to you? Well, you know, grab a handful of spoilers and rip them out. That makes it very comfortable for everybody. No, I'm talking about the ones that just uh, use VNAV and don't try to do anything to anticipate the, you know, the things that you need to do to make everything operate smoothly. And it's just like you're, you can let go of your drink and it will stay suspended in, uh, in, in space in front of you. Yeah. As you, <laughs> uh, and you're just like, I just like, experience really? negative G yeah. or zero G zero G. Yeah. And sometimes that is, negative uh, G. That uh, is 
that has been the focus of the way that they've been training, though, is that yes. they just want everybody magical. It works so well on our airplane. Well, you know, it, it works well a, in like absolute perfect it, switch. Yeah, when it works well in a like a, a, a simulator that doesn't have any motion, and uh, you don't feel a thing. It's nice and smooth. Yes, exactly. <sighs> anyway, don't get me started. Too late. Um, too late. All right. Um, Bill writes, uh, he sent us this uh, link to a YouTube video, uh, and it is a video of a Boeing 787 door trainer. Easy, easy, Nick. Um, it's uh, I don't know if you watched this video, uh, but it shows <laughs> it showed the door uh, automatically closing. And he said, uh, is this not a plug design? Could it be opened in flight? And this is, again, Bill Heron. Thank you. Great, great question. Um, and if you watch this, you look at this door. And, of course, most of these uh, airplane doors actually do swing out and then come back in and seat. And believe it or not, they are plug doors. And but you look at this video and you go, well, that can't be a plug door because how could it be? Uh, the, there's the telltale movement, the final movement, uh, which is when it translates downwards and the uh, the lugs of the door will settle behind the uh, fuselage plates, um, thereby creating the plug style fitting. So uh, yeah, Nick is it, the winner. Comes ding 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 ding. He is right. <laughs> So if you if you manipulate the door just right in this opening, even though the door you know is about the same size as the opening or perhaps even larger, but if it's angled a certain way or whatever, it can actually fit within that space. And then as Nick says, when you watch this video, you'll see that last little bit of movement downward, and that's how it works. Yeah, you have to just imagine. Uh, in fact, there is actually a view of it. If you pause the video at just the right spot, you can see that there is an L-shaped channel uh, in the uh, fuselage, and there's obviously some large uh, lugs on the door itself. Uh, and um, the, the, the lugs uh, locate in the um, shaft, and then as the uh, door completes its movement and comes completely closed, uh, the door slides downwards and locates in a in a position there where, um, as you increase the pressurization on the aircraft, it will be forced against something that is solid and can't be uh, moved. So it will, you know, and that's really the principle behind a plug door. It's not a, like a cork which uh, you push into a hole. It just so long as um, the more pressure you put on the inside, the firmer the door is seated. Uh, and that's that's the um, that's the, the basis of the design. But it is a good question, I think, because you look at that and you go, oh, yeah. wait a minute, how does that work? How is that a plug door? Because it was actually outside the airplane. Now yeah. it's back inside. So that doesn't make any sense. And uh, no. I kind of did <laughs> the same thing. It's like, huh, well, maybe it isn't a plug door. And then I did some research on Wikipedia and found out that it's all it's it's all trickery. It's a uh, voodoo. It's an illusion. It's an illusion. Yeah, it's not. A, it's not a plug all the way around it like a cork is. So it there, there are just um, tabs and um, what's the word I'm looking for? Lugs, mm -hmm. tabs and lugs. And so long as when the the door is seated in its final position, those two are in line, and that's what we look for when we check the door is properly locked. 
Um, there's a mechanical indicator. I think on the uh, 7 8 it's an electrical indicator. But on the Airbus, it's a mechanical indicator showing that the door is lined up properly. And that means the lugs on the door are located against those uh, immovable um, bits on the fuselage so that there's no way the door can fly. Ah, in. so it's not necessarily the door that's the plug, but it could be those those uh, other pieces pin. and pins yeah. and stuff. So just, just scanning the article here, I think this was, was this the Wikipedia article uh -huh. that you put in? Um, it talks about locking mechanism with multiple pins or hatch dogs what's a hatch, hatch dog well, come on a dog a dog <laughs> a hatch dog if you think about it you remember those old movies of submarines and they used to have those big iron doors and they slam them okay. and they spin the wheel yeah. yeah 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 and the wheel forces out two arms that locate in holes and then and that's dogging the door so that's probably where that term comes oh from. you dog i think it's Oh, there you go. <laughs> I think that's a hashtag. How could yeah, we possibly get waiting to bite you? Touch anything. How could we possibly get through a uh, an episode of APG without Dana's barking sound? <laughs> there you go. <laughs> wow, we must be getting near the end because uh, this is all falling apart. Um, yeah, because Dana wants to go out for a piece. Speak, uh, speaking of lugs, <laughs> Mark. Now, Mark, I'm not calling you a lug. Uh, writes in, why do North Americans use the term afterburner versus Europeanists? 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 I'm sorry. <laughs> it was a compliment. Uh, Europeans <laughs> use reheat. Are they the same thing? So, Captain Nick, what do you think about that? Uh, that's you, a really hard one. Uh, let me think about that. Uh, yes. Okay, thank you. We'll move on to the next piece of feedback. Uh, no, uh, just that you you guys just like to rename it. You don't like using the same names we do because you like to think, well, hell, it makes it sound like it was invented in Europe. We can't well, have that because everything's invented <laughs> in America. We know that. Well, so come on now. We, we, we adapted to your lineup and weight versus position and hold. I mean, lineup and weight so British. It's not even funny. Well, line up like and chaos. wait. It's not British. Line up okay. and wait. It's like chaos. Position and around. hold. That's more manly, masculine. Position <laughs> hold and that hold. Position. Hold that thing. Well, hold that your, position. Only this your mind, wait Dana. for me to be there. <laughs> line up and wait. That's like, I don't know. You say so many bad things here. <laughs> okay, so. So, Jeff, you were going to say something about... Um, something intellectual about this i was going to attempt that excellent but apparently we've degraded <laughs> to <laughs> the gutter um a little bit of mud yes. now we all know what a yeah, reheat is it, it it is uh using the uh oxygen that's still left in the hot gases that uh, have come through the engine uh and uh, exiting the jet pipe and you uh refuel uh put more fuel into that uh those hot gases and reignite them a second time and uh, that adds a considerable more thrust a larger amount of thrust to the system but it does require large volumes of fuel which is uh bit of a nightmare so it's a great way in fact you can reheat almost any uh, type of jet engine they even you can even reheat a piston engine would you believe because really? uh, yep there there was a way uh, well there were people who were 
doing the old Schneider Cup back in the days of, um, you know, seaplanes um, and the early uh, Rolls-Royce Merlins who were looking at uh, reheating the exhaust from the piston engines to give more thrust. Um, so it's not just the thing about uh, jet engines, doesn't matter. Uh, and uh, it's just the process of reburning that uh, exhaust fuel to give you uh, extra thrust. Now, uh, who invented it? I don't know. You have to read that. So, uh, so here's the deal. I started doing some okay. research on this, and yeah. I thought initially, I thought, ah, well, it was called an afterburner because in 1947 in the science newsletter, uh, here's the quote, emergency spurts of speed of jet propelled combat planes will result from a development of the Ryan aeronautical company, which the makers call an afterburner. And then it says the same source refers to, uh, reheat and they have some other citations in 1947 and 1948 when a British patent was, uh, uh, proposed for the act of uh, turning on the reheat, opening up the propelling nozzle, et cetera, et cetera. And then I thought, oh, wait, 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 hold on here. Uh, early British reheat work included flight tests on Rolls-Royce W2 slash B23 and a Gloucester Meteor in late 1944, about three years before the earlier citation that I mentioned. W2 was Whittle's second engine design, wasn't there it? There we go. And ground tests on power jets, W2-700 engine in mid-1945. The engine, uh, anyway, they talked about reheat and not after burner. So I guess based on my very shallow research, it looks like uh, the, perhaps the term Reheat was actually uh, proposed or used uh, earlier than after burner, but microwave mi microwave onion ovens and microwave, microwave onion. onions. <laughs> I've never heard of a microwave onion before. <laughs> don't, microwave on oven. Don't don't doubt. Hang that. on a minute, Dana. Where did the klystron from the microwave oven come from? Uh, the what? The the bit of kit that generates the microwaves in your microwave oven. Where do you think that came Oscar from? Oscar Mayer in the United States of America. British radar. Oh, okay. <laughs> oh. all right. Okay. That's enough. Let's just well, say you guys are still upset about us throwing the tea over overboard. So. Let's just say well, you that guys in Boston oh, are stuck in the wrong century. <laughs> <laughs> Let's just say that afterburner and reheat. Uh, is pretty much the same thing. And uh, you know what? Who cares? <laughs> Which one was first? <laughs> right, right. Okay. Um, Glenn uh, Towler from uh, Wellington, New Zealand, sent in this uh, quick little uh, thing. He says, I thought you might like this story. I also find it amusing that the BBC couldn't find a photo of a K KLM 777 and used an Embraer 190 instead. <laughs> he said, such similar aircraft, don't you think? And uh, so this link that he gave us uh, from the BBC, yes, indeed, when he sent this, if you clicked on this link, you would see this article regarding a KLM 777 losing uh, a piece of its wing. And uh, the picture indeed was a regional jet. And I thought it was pretty amusing and funny that they did this, but not 
not um, surprising because we're all used to that kind of thing with the journalists. Uh, but uh, when I clicked on it before we started recording today, guess what? They they must have had several people that said, uh, that's not a 777. And they changed the photo. It's still not a 777. Uh, but it's kind of uh, <laughs> nope. it's it's more similar to a triple seven than a regional jet. Um, I'm not sure exactly what it is. It looks like some kind of an Airbus narrow body to me. But they they picked a a, a hazy picture of a <laughs> indistinct indistinct aircraft aircraft in the yeah, distance. Larger. But it was another case of the journalist just doing a search for KLM and seeing the KLM cover colors, and they go, "Okay, that's good enough." So, uh, yeah. thank you. Frustrating. Isn't it? Yeah. But you know, we're used to it. Aren't we? That's the trouble. We're getting used to I know. it. We've, we're stopping, stopping complaining, but <laughs> good for Glenn. All right. Um, let's do this. Let's do this for the last piece of feedback for today's show. Uh, this is from Rebecca, um, who we met at the, uh, meetup in the wings over Pittsburgh. Um, a, a very lovely lady, and we met some of her offspring as well, who were equally as uh, wonderful. Um, Dear Captain Jeff and APG crew, I've just returned from an informal talk given by a neighbor who found himself at the center of the planning of the Flight 93 Memorial. And I was so moved that an idea which has been brewing in me has risen to the surface, this time not to be pushed aside by busy times. I'll attach a link to something that the speaker has produced for a local public radio show. Uh, I am an APGer from Harrisburg, Pennsylvania, and have attended Wings Over Pittsburgh, as well as more recently a small meetup with Nev and Craig in D.C. That was just a few episodes ago. And even met Micah in Maine last summer while on vacation. I know that meetups are good times and full of fun, so I've never quite figured out how to shape my idea into a suggestion. But then again, we're community, so I'm not alone. I would like to suggest a meetup at the Flight 93 Memorial in Shanksville, Pennsylvania. It's located about an hour and a half from Pittsburgh Airport, two hours and 15 minutes from uh, Harrisburg, MDT. I do not know quite what the vibe would be because it's such a solemn place and feelings run deep after having been there. Nonetheless, I'd like to try to put something together. I'll be traveling to Pittsburgh in uh, or on October 18th. For a routine checkup at the UPMC, University of Pittsburgh Medical Center, I believe, and could meet face-to-face that afternoon or evening with any Pittsburgh-based APGers to brainstorm. By the way, the fall foliage along Scenic Route 30 in western Pennsylvania is late this year, so I'll be passing through just a few days shy of the predicated peak, which or predicted peak which will uh, be expected the 24th through the 30th. If anyone would like to meet me at flight 93, it would be a very, it would be very late in the day or the next day, as I might also be hauling some furniture from my house to another APG who just moved to Pittsburgh and I uh, might end up staying over. Okay. That sounded weird. It's all okay. The furniture is from storage in my attic And the APG friend is my oldest son, (laughs) Andrew, I believe. I wonder if we could plan something ahead, though, perhaps for next year, when the final installment of the permanent memorial is expected to have been completed, a 93-foot wind chime feature called the Tower of Voices. I would be glad to dialogue with anyone interested in making something like that happen. 
please message me on Slack, Twitter, where I am Rebecca Sela. Uh, she says not my real last name. Or maybe Captain Jeff can forward this email feedback to you, and my long email address will be found in the header. I will try to post something in Slack in the Meetup page as well. Thank you for allowing this serious teetotaler in the APG community. It takes all kinds, I guess. Laugh out loud, Rebecca. And so um, that sounds like an interesting idea. Um, Flight 93, of course, everybody will maybe... uh, Maybe not everybody, but uh, we'll remind you was that flight that was hijacked, but the passengers overcame the hijackers. And many think that this flight was destined to head to Washington, D.C. to crash into something significant and cause all kinds of mayhem. Uh, so uh, the, uh, the the folks on board realized what was happening and they were quite heroic in uh, bursting through that cockpit door and keeping that airplane from uh, heading to where it was intended. Um, uh, quite um, quite a, uh, uh, an important event, and I think that uh, doing a meetup there might be something uh, that would be, you know, a good thing. I'm sure there are a lot of people who would um, feel sufficiently moved to want to go and do that, Jeff. Yeah, absolutely. And especially if they're working towards the final installment of the, you know, official permanent memorial. I think a lot of people would be interested in seeing that as well. So, yes. So we'll, as, as they said, a lot of different places, we'll never forget. And uh, it was, you know, many years ago now, 2001. So what, 16 years ago uh, since that terrible event. And, uh, but we can't forget uh, the heroism uh, on this flight. So thank you, Rebecca, for suggesting it. And if anybody out there feels so moved, please contact Rebecca. I'll put her contact information in the show notes as well as the other links that she had mentioned. With that, uh, let's see. I guess it's time to wrap this thing up. Um, anybody want to say anything before we do the final wrap up? No, I don't think so. Oh. <laughs> no. <laughs> then let's do this. Uh, as always, if you're interested in learning more about the uh, APG community, the APG crew, the coffee fun, merchandise, and uh, much more, head over to the website, airlinepilotguy.com. Also, we have the apps for the iOS and Android platforms, and uh, you can learn about how to download those on the website as well, or the show notes for the show. Uh, social media. Social media. You can find us on Twitter uh, using the handle at APG crew. You can find our individual Twitter handles pinned to the top of that page as well. Um, you can go to Facebook, facebook.com slash airline pilot guy, all kinds of information there about interesting links that uh, community members post. Uh, usually there's some information about meetups there as well. If those are happening and just other general announcements, good ways to interact with us. And we have something called Slack. And uh, this is where Hillel tells us about how to join our Slack group. APG listeners, please join us on our Slack team. On Slack, we share news and ideas. We suggest episode and plain tales topics. We plan meetups and events to get into the Slack team. Please send me a tweet with your preferred email address to at 
H-I-1-1-E-1, and I'll send you an invitation. That's Hillel at H-I-1-1-E-1, and see you in Slack. Thanks, Hillel. (laughs) And let's see, I guess that about does it. So uh, wishing you clear skies, unlimited visibility, and tailwinds. Take care, and God bless. Cheers, y'all. Bye, everybody. We'll see you next time. Good day. fictionalized, mentioned, implied, or accidentally slipped by any of the participants, guests, or feedback providers you may or may not have heard, may or may not believe you may have heard, on this or any prior episode of the Airline Pilot Guy podcast. It ain't Boeing, I ain't going.